Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, how, how are, are you doing? Doing awesome, how are you? I'm great, I'm just a little bit delayed. Apparently there's a split second delay between the sound of my voice and the lips producing them. You look like a Kung Fu master. Well, thank you, I'll go with that. By the way, in case anybody's wondering if there are any bets still in the live chat, this is the thing, baby, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing. Repeat with me now, it's clobbering time. Look at that. Nice, nice. And folks, I'm going to be sniffling all through the the show. I've got allergies kicked in this morning, and uh, I feel really awful, but uh, we're going to get through tonight's episode, and then I'm going to go right to bed. My old mission companion, I think, had allergies, too, and he was giving that talk on April 25th at BYU-Idaho because he was crying a lot, too, at certain points. There, there is compelling evidence not to believe in the church. Yes, <laughs> and when the church historian tells you that there are compelling reasons to doubt Mormonism, you can believe him. You can believe him. Go ahead. Believe him. There are compelling reasons to doubt. <laughs> we are encouraging you to believe this church leader. Yeah. Yeah, you should. You should take him at face value. You should understand his words and believe him entirely. Absolutely. That's what yeah. I say. I was just going to put in the uh, comments, folks, if you want to... Join the Mormon discussion mailing list. We'd love to have you. Um, the thing going out right now into the comments of the live chat is uh, that link that will take you to our uh, mailing list and you can subscribe there. Uh, anything else from URFM? Otherwise, I'll jump into this with, uh, with tonight's episode. Is that the same thing as subscribing to the show or is that a different subscription? This subscribes to our mailing list. So every couple of months, I'll send out a newsletter through MailChimp that notifies all of our followers first thanking them for donations, but also letting them know uh, what cool episodes coming up from Radio Free Mormon or from Mormonism Live or from one of the other podcasts under the umbrella. Okay, great. Well, in the meantime, if everybody watching the show could please hit like, that would be awesome. Usually yeah. at the end of the show, we've got five to 600 to 800 people watching and about seven likes. I hope that's not an actual reflection of the audience enjoyment of the show. But if you just take the time to scroll up, hit like, hit that thumbs up button, and also hit subscribe, subscribe to our show, and that will help us in the algorithms I understand. Is that right, Bill Real? It does. It helps us out a bunch. And folks, uh, you know, we don't say it every episode, but I'll say it here. We would really deeply appreciate uh, donations. It's how we do what we do. It's how we have the time to, to vote, to divide, uh, dive into the historical uh, context of issues like tonight as we talk about the Greek Salter incident. And... Uh, it's kind of a I, cool story, and you found it. I would say things. we've been working pretty much nonstop on this. At least I know I have, and I'm pretty sure you yeah. have for the past few days. Yeah. Yep. And so we'll jump into this now. I'm going to throw up on the screen. Let me go back to that. I hate it when Change. you throw up on the screen. It reminds yeah. me of that scene from The Exorcist. 
Yeah, totally. Um, ah, I recognize that guy in the lower left, that handsome fellow. I know him. Look at that. And then there's, uh, what's that, Michael, what's his name, Clayne? Michael Kane. Michael Kane. yeah. I know Michael that's Kane actually second to the left. This is actually Henry Caswell, though I know that you think that he bears some kind of a strike <laughs> and there's a resemblance of, to the famous actor. Yeah, and there's a picture of Michael Kane later that we can compare the two of them. Joseph Smith there, kind of middle right, with holding the seer stone with his white top hat, and then the less handsome fellow on the far right, myself. So, Well, you may um, be number two, but you try harder, Bill. I, I do. I try really hard. So Henry Caswell, and we can say Caswell, Caswell, I don't know what the pronunciation is, but most of the folks in the historical documents misspelled his name with a W-E-L-L, yes. but the official correct spelling of Henry's last name, C-A-S. W-A-L-L. He was, uh, folks inside the church, I believe, called him by the moniker, the anti-Mormon extraordinaire. And this shows up in like Maxwell Institute documents. I think it shows up in one of the older documents as well. We'll, we'll put some of these documents up on the screen, uh, at least the text of them, if we don't have the original document itself. And in some cases, we at least have the cover of the document. So, I don't want to go into a ton of history on Henry himself. We can give just kind of a brief synopsis here. Henry uh, Caswell, uh, a professor, reverend, and skeptic of Joseph Smith, visited Nauvoo on April 18th and 19th, 1842. He visited Smith and other church leaders and brought with him a Psalter. And I can read this, but RFM, tell us what a Psalter is. A Psalter is a Greek version of the Psalms. Excuse me. A Psalter is any version of the Psalms. A Greek Psalter is a yes. Greek version of the Psalms. Yes, a volume so it's like, containing. It's, I'm sorry, it's just like if least. you're in jail and you get a small New Testament. The Gideon you know, you don't get the whole Bible. And yeah. I'm just hearing this from others. I'm not speaking from personal experience, just so everybody knows. But I understand that if you're some places like in jail, you can get a small New Testament. And a lot of times those New Testament will also have the Psalms at the beginning. Well, the Psalms were highly prized as religious literature, and so frequently there would be a small book containing just the Psalms in it. And in this case, what we're talking about is a small book with the Psalms in it in Greek. And apparently it's a very old book. Henry Caswell thought that it was about 600 years old, and that was in 1840, so that would put it in the mid-1200s if he was correct in that. Also written on parchment, by the way. Yes, and um, I, I'm going to show a bunch of these here in a moment. We'll we'll look at some of these older psalters. It's actually impressive how good a shape some of these are in, uh, as old as they are. So so sorry about that. Okay, just one one minor correction, Bill. I think it's yeah. the 17th, 18th, and 19th that he was in Nauvoo. Hence the title of his first edition of his book being Three Days at Nauvoo." But the 19th is yes. certainly the day of the encounter with Joseph Smith that all the hubbub is about, bub. Yeah, the rumor is he took a red eye in, so he just he just caught the very end of the 17th. He got a red eye up the Mississippi from St. Louis where he had business. There we go. So uh, you've got the explanation for Psalters. Uh, most Psalters were richly uh, illuminated, uh, and they include some of the most spectacular surviving examples of medieval book art. Caswell came with the intention of deceiving Joseph Smith to put a known ancient document in front of him and to see if Smith would misidentify the document. And so here are some examples of some Psalters. This is the Psalter of Louis the German, created in the mid-9th century. 
And wow. one of the things that you noted that becomes important in this is that most of these Psalters, and you'll see that as we go through the images, have portions of text that are initiated by a letter um, that is sometimes seems recognizable as English and other times seems to be something completely foreign. And, uh, and I'm sorry, I need to, my wife's going to bring me a Kleenex here in a moment. It's but, okay. Well, um, it's all Greek to me. Yeah. And I'll tell you that the, the capital letter <laughs> at the beginning is the first letter of probably of the Psalm itself. And over there on the right of this particular picture is this nice illustration illustration of Jesus being crucified and that's the illuminations that's being referred to in other words it, it there are drawings there are paintings there are these kinds of things that we would think of going along with the book we wouldn't call them illuminations but yeah. that's what they called them that's an illuminated manuscript because it has these types of uh, artwork depictions yeah and you can see on that left hand page that there is uh, characters that are on the left before the text, before these sections of text play out. And so we'll go to the next one here. Uh, this one is the Worden Psalter created in the Worden Anderer Monastery after Werden, mein lieber Freund, Werden Anderer. Yeah, thank you. Monastery after 1089 AD. Um, this is the Theodore Psalter, named after Theodore of Caesarea, who was responsible for both copying and illustrating it. Wow, he could do both. Produced for Michael the Abbot of the important monastery of Studion in Constantinople in 1066. And I don't know why I was having trouble coming up with the, the expression. It's a picture book. We call it a picture book. It has pictures in illustrations, it. Illustrations. Well yeah. Ilu yeah, illustrations. And that's where you get the word. Yeah. Okay, continuing. Yeah, these are, these are beautifully done. Uh, a lot of these are. And of course, if you have the money to pay for really, really nice stuff, sometimes uh, letters will be even gilt. And then this was one that you noted. This is the uh, Dagolf Psalter. This was the Golden Psalter of Charlemagne. What was the history on this one that you kind of caught? Oh, that uh, most scholars think that it probably belonged to his wife, who I think his name was Hildegard. Pretty name. All right. So there's that one. And also in that one, you also see the letters that are illuminated as well. The first letter of each psalm is illuminated of course this is going to be very important later on that's why we're dwelling on it so we're not doing this for nothing folks yeah so this is pap uh, papyrus amherst 63 this is containing about 35 literary texts in aramic that was uh, that date to the 7th and 6th centuries bce papyrus amherst 63 is written in a cursive egyptian script known as known as demotic when it was recently uh, deciphered and translated, it revealed the Israelite psalm. So this was like an Egyptian psalter. Right. And this is one of uh, the selling points for Mormon apologists. And that's why I recognize the papyrus Amherst 63, because here we have a connection where it had originally been denounced by certain parties that it was ridiculous to think about a book, i.e. the Book of Mormon being written in Egyptian, even if it's Reformed Egyptian, to write Hebrew scripture in Reformed Egyptian. A lot of people just said that's ridiculous, but then along comes Papyrus Amherst 63, which my understanding is, is they were having the devil's own time translating this because, of course, they're trying to translate it. It's in Egyptian writing, so, of course, they're trying to translate it in Egyptian. And then some smart guy came along and said, well, wait a second. I just figured out what the problem is. This isn't Egyptian. This is Hebrew. Yeah. We're writing yeah, the Hebrew Psalms 
in the Egyptian language, which is very much like what the Book of Mormon reports itself as doing. And then this is the Fadan Moore Psalter, an early medieval Christian Psalter or text of the Book of Psalms discovered in a peat bog in July 2006 in the town of Fadmore. Yes. North County Tipperary, Ireland. It's a long, long way to Tipperary. It is a parchment codex in a leather cover that was probably written around 800 CE. That one's in really rough shape. We're not going to gather much information from that one. No. Uh, this was a papyrus fragment from a Psalter Coptic 7th century. And and my point is, as we go, I'm going to go back here and just show a couple of these. Um, if I look at these, there are times where the language appears to have letters from the English language. Yes. And I would recognize like, oh, yeah, there's enough of them that it's not coincidence that those are letters from the English alphabet, even if it is a different language and those letters or characters are used differently in a different language, right? Right, but we recognize it. Greek is where we derive our own English alphabet. So there would naturally be similarities we would see. Yep. Um, And some of these are much different. So that looked a little different. This one's back to having a lot of English sort of letters, obviously the Egyptian. But when we get to some of these, the the characters, what's that? And that's Egyptian right there. Yeah, but yeah, by the Coptic as well. So, um, but again, some of these are unrecognizable. And then this one, This was the one I found that I thought would be sort of most interesting to today's conversation. We don't really know what Psalter uh, Henry took to present to Joseph Smith. We don't have it named. We don't have any images of it. But what we know is that he took a Psalter to Joseph to try to deceive him. Um, And then Joseph Smith does interact with the text and the debate that we're going to go through tonight is what is the outcome of that interaction? What is, what does Joseph Smith have to say about this Psalter text? But this one here, again, you can see letters that look English. You can also see letters that seem kind of weird characters that seem weird. And rather than having a letter on the left-hand side to initiate it, there are characters at the bottom and top of the page that are um, there as something separate designating whatever about that page of text. They might be uh, it might be page numbers. numbers. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And I know that Carrie Schertz, who often watches the show, can read. At least that's what he says to everybody. I mean, he stops strangers on the street and says, I can read Greek, so I expect it's true. So maybe he can tell us in the live chat whether these are. Yeah. Or, yeah, put it up on the screen, whether those are page numbers at the bottom. Yeah. And so uh, Coswell uh, writes about the incident in his book, and and the book is called Three Days in Nauvoo. It's also called The City of the Mormons. And you can even see he's got both titles there on the first edition. Three Days in Nauvoo, in which he gives an account of presenting Joseph Smith, the founder of, uh, and I got this off Wikipedia, the, the Mormon movement, with an old Greek Psalter to translate. Coswell was aware of Smith's previous claims regarding the translation of the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham, which will become important tonight too, from Reformed Egyptian, and wanted to test the truthfulness of these claims. The Greek Psalter's contents were established prior to the meeting and contained a common Greek translation of the Psalms. I'm going to sneeze. Hold on. Okay, everybody wait. Bill's going to yeah. sneeze. Nope, it, I guess that passed. So, all right, so. I thought that would take care of it. Yeah, think about the way oranges smell. That was always the secret my wife said, and it sometimes worked. Or have 232 people watching you. 
232 people watching me sneeze all over my camera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's a few excerpts from Three Days in Nauvoo. Uh, do you want to read this RFM? I would so love to read this. So these are a few day, uh, excerpts. By the way, this is an 82-page book. And I read the book as part of the preparation for tonight's show. And we'll get to some of that because I think it's important to read it. There's a lot more in this book than just this one encounter between our hero, Henry Caswell, and Joseph Smith. That's just one page, right? There's a lot that leads up to it, stuff that happens after. But that's one, one or two pages out of this 82-page book. But it's the one that gets all the attention. I've never heard anybody mention anything else about this book. And in fact, I think that if, that if it did not have this one brief encounter described between Caswell and Joseph Smith, where Joseph Smith flubs on his prophetic translation part, at least according to Caswell, this book would be forgotten because there's not really anything else in it. But a few excerpts from Three Days in Nauvoo written by Henry Coswell. In order to test the scholarship of the prophet, I had further provided myself with an ancient Greek manuscript of the Psalter written upon parchment and probably about 600 years old. On the following morning, and by the way, this would, I think, probably not be printed in the sense of on a printing press. This is something that was drawn exclusively yeah. on parchment and then bound between what he calls uh, wooden, was it worm-eaten oak, are the, um, the, the front and the back cover of this yeah. book. So on the following morning, Monday, April 18th, I took my venerable Greek manuscript of the Psalter and proceeded to the ferry to obtain a passage. Now, he's come up from St. Louis where he had business. He's in the neighborhood. He's going to drop in on the Mormon, see what's shaking up there. But he doesn't spend the night, any of the nights, in Nauvoo. Instead, he spends the nights in Montrose, Iowa, across the Mississippi from Nauvoo. So when he says, proceeded to the ferry to obtain a passage, that's because he has to get on the boat, which I think was owned by Joseph Smith, and get passage across uh, the Mississippi from Montrose to Nauvoo. Okay, so he arrives in Nauvoo, perceiving a respectable-looking store or shop, and I'm not sure what the difference is. I entered it and began to converse with the storekeeper. I mentioned that I had been informed that Mr. Smith possessed some remarkable Egyptian curiosities, which I wished to see. Now, once again, he's not going to see Joseph Smith this day. Joseph Smith is out of town doing something of business in Carthage, the county seat. But he'll be back the next day when he'll encounter him on April 19th. So he says to the storekeeper, I'd like to see these Egyptian curiosities, which I understand Mr. Smith has. I added that if Mr. Smith could be induced to show me his treasures... I would show him in return a very wonderful book which had lately come into my possession. So he's talking about the Greek Psalter. You show me mine, I'll show you your, I'll show you you show me yours, I'll show you mine. It's been too long since I played that game, obviously. Yeah. Oh, continuing. The storekeeper informed me that Mr. Smith was absent, having gone to Carthage that morning, but that he would return about nine o'clock in the evening. He promised to obtain for me admission to the curiosities. These are the Egyptian curiosities, the parchments and the mummies, and begged to be permitted to see the wonderful book. I accordingly unfolded it from the many wrappers in which I had enveloped it or enveloped it. So it not only has oak bindings, but this is, if he thinks it's 600 years old and it's on parchment, he's gonna take extra steps to ensure that it's kept safe. I mean, he's carrying it around the, the American Midwest and up the Mississippi for crying out loud. So I accordingly unfolded it from the many wrappers in which I had enveloped it, and in the presence of the storekeeper and many astonished spectators, whom the rumor of the arrival of a strange book had collected, 
I produced to view its covers of worm-eaten oak, its discolored parchments, and its mysterious characters. Surprise was depicted on the countenances of all present, and after a long silence, one person, wiser than his fellows, declared that he knew it to be a revelation from the Lord, and that probably it was one of the lost books of the Bible providentially recovered. Oh, continuing. Looking at me with a patronizing air, he assured me that I had brought it to the right place to get it interpreted, for that none on earth but the Lord's prophet could explain it or unfold its real antiquity and value. Oh, I replied, I am going to England next week, and doubtless I shall find some learned man in one of the universities who can expound it. To this, by the way, he's obviously being a little bit coy here, right? He knows it's a Greek Psalter. I would expect that he can read Greek. He is an Anglican minister who had to go to school and learn probably Greek at a minimum and probably Hebrew as well. So I expect that he can read it. Uh, but he's being coy here. Now it goes on. To this, he, the other man, answered with a sneer that the Lord had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, that he had made foolish the wisdom of this world, and that I ought to thank Providence for having brought me to Nauvoo, where the hidden things of darkness could be revealed by divine power. All expressed the utmost anxiety that I should remain in the city until the prophet's return. The storekeeper offered immediately to send an express 18 miles to Carthage to hasten the return of Joseph. At length I yielded to their importunities and promised that if they would bring me over from Montrose on the following morning, I would exhibit the book to the prophet. So that could be the next day. But now he gets to see some things about the Egyptian antiquities from the storekeeper, even though Joseph Smith is not present. The storekeeper now proceeded to redeem his promise of, of obtaining for me access to the curiosities, the Egyptian stuff. He led the way to a room behind his store, on the door of which was an inscription to the following effect, Office of Joseph Smith, President of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Having Jesus Christ is nowhere to be found. Well, that's if he's remembering it absolutely accurately, because he does say to the following effect. So, but if you remember, though, the church, if I'm not mistaken, was just the Church of the Latter-day Saints for a moment. Yeah, it was from like 1833 to 1838. Yeah. And that's why the name on the church of the Kirtland Temple is the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Because it was dedicated in 1836 when the church still had that name. Okay, so having introduced me together with several Mormons to the Sanctum Sanctorum. The Holy of Holies. He, yes, the Holy of Holies. Sanctum Sanctorum, Latin, I think. He locked the door behind him and proceeded to what appeared to be a small chest of drawers. From this, he drew forth a number of glazed slides like picture frames containing sheets of papyrus with Egyptian inscriptions and hieroglyphics. By the way, so far, everything that he's describing is completely in order with what we know was the case there in Nauvoo, that they had taken some of these papyrus or papyri that they thought was especially significant and probably mostly the ones that had like pictures and drawings on it, and cut them out of the papyrus and then had them framed behind glass in order to preserve them was their, their point of view. And so these are the slides or the pictures that are being shown now according to Caswell by the shopkeeper. These had been enrolled from four mummies which the prophet had purchased at a cost of $2,400. He's learning this from the shopkeeper, I would presume, and he's getting all of his details exactly correct. It was $2,400, it was four mummies. So 
What I'm going to be hinting at now and elaborating upon later is that every time that Henry Caswell can be checked for his historical accuracy, he comes up aces. He gets it right, it seems, every time, or at least every time that I can see. So he goes as on tricky by as memory as tricky as memory is, his memory seems pretty good. Yes, it is. And by the way, this book that he publishes, the first edition after he gets back to England, because that's where he's from. So if you're reading this, you could read him with an English accent. Maybe he sounds a little bit like Michael Caine. I don't know. But he's on his way back to England. He wasn't kidding about going back to England next week. He goes back to England and he writes this book up. Maybe he does it during the passage and he gets it published by the end of that same year, 1842. So this is very recent in his recollection. He goes on, by some inexplicable mode, as the, as the store's keeper informed me, Mr. Smith had discovered that these sheets contained the writings of Abraham, written with his own hand while in Egypt. Mm. Point, yep. Pointing to the Nailed figure it. of a man lying on a table, he said, that is the picture of Abraham on the point of being sacrificed. That man standing by him with a drawn knife is an idolatrous priest of the Egyptians. Abraham prayed to God, who immediately unloosed his bands and delivered him. This is all what he's quoting from the storekeeper who's showing him what we can all immediately identify as what we have now in the book of Abraham is facsimile one. And he's getting it exactly right. Sweet. Okay, so there's that one. Then he says, turning oh, sorry. to... Oh, I hadn't quite gotten done. No, oh, no, okay. sorry, my friend. It's okay. Turning to another of the drawers and pointing to a hieroglyphic representation, one of the Mormons said, so apparently it's another one at least another one in the room, in addition to the storekeeper. One of the Mormons said, Mr. Smith informs us that this picture is an emblem of redemption. Now we'll come back to this as well, but let me go ahead and read what he has to say. Do you see those four little figures? This is what Caswell says this Mormon is saying that Joseph Smith told this Mormon about what this papyrus represents. Do you see those four little figures? Well, those are the four quarters of the earth. And do you see that big dog looking? If you'll hang on just a second here. There we go. Had to wake up my computer again, all of a sudden my screen went black. And do you see that big dog looking at the four figures? That is the old devil desiring to devour the four quarters of the earth. Look at this person keeping back the big dog. That is Christ keeping the devil from devouring the four quarters of the earth. Look down this way. This is all part of the same quote. Look down this way. This figure near the side is Jacob and those are his two wives. Now, do you see those steps? What, I replied, do you mean those stripes across the dress of one of Jacob's wives? Yes, he said, that is Jacob's ladder. That, I remarked, is indeed curious. Yeah, and by so the we'll way, after back. that quote, after the quote, he says, it's indeed curious because it's curious that the ladder only goes up as far as the woman's waist. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll come back to the story, but um, here's a depiction. So this this is, these Mormons are telling Henry about the Book of Abraham documents. And you can tell by how well that this other Mormon is reporting the story that he's heard it a few times. He has his data points down. And we'll see as we get into these documents later, uh, you're gonna point out which document it is and, and show some of these connections based on also tying into and connecting to this Henry Coswell uh, story. So here's the depiction. This shows up, you said in the second edition Yes, of Henry's which is the book. next year, 1843, so apparently it was popularly received, and he ran through the first edition of however many copies it was. Next year, he's already getting a second edition up with a new title, 
and it's 800 plus pages so it's greatly amplified as well has this illustration as a frontispiece for the main thing that this book has become famous for which was his brief encounter with joseph smith and yeah. so there you have on the far right sitting looking down this is our hero this is henry caswell sitting there with joseph smith who's leaned forward in his chair with the greek psalter in his hands examining it and you can see there what a small book it is it would probably be about the size in dimensions of width and length as perhaps i don't know maybe the first edition of the book of commandments or doctrine and covenants or even smaller than that it's a very very small first book. all it has to contain is 150 psalms right yeah yeah so you can yep. see him winnowing through it and then next to him are the all the different mormons or members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints who are looking on in astonishment at joseph smith and it's interesting, you know, he gets there before Joseph is in town and he's building up. I mean, every, he's basically saying, I got, I had this ancient text and people are a little amazed by it. And you can probably sense the excitement that's kind of building as Joseph Smith comes back into town and gets the chance to look at this ancient text and tell everybody what it is. Yeah, Joseph Smith has built his reputation largely on being an interpreter and a translator of ancient languages. Yeah. So when we get back to the story, by the way, there's Michael Caine. And I just, I see the same mouth. Uh, I know. And I, when I, you, when you mentioned that to me, I said, what's it all about, Henry? Yeah. What's Maybe it I all should about, sing Mike? that just, just to make it a little bit better. What's it all about, Henry? Is it just for the moment we live? Now, if anybody gets that, then great. Okay. So referring to the Psalter that uh, Coswell had brought, uh, Smith, Joseph Smith asked him if, uh, Coswell had any idea of its meaning. And Henry replied that, you know, he believed it to be a Greek Psalter, but that he should like to hear Joseph Smith's opinion. Uh, no, he said, Joseph Smith said that. It ain't Greek at all, except perhaps a few words. This book is very valuable. It is a dictionary of Egyptian hieroglyphics. And that is the main money quote that yeah. everybody gets exercised about and what we're going to be talking about tonight. Go ahead. It is a dictionary of Egyptian hieroglyphics pointing to the capital letters at the commencement of each verse. He said, quote, them figures is Egyptian hieroglyphics and them which follows is the interpretation of the hieroglyphics written in reformed Egyptian. Them characters is like the letters that was engraven on the gold plates. Right. A local newspaper, the Warsaw Message, also mentioned the event and stated that multiple supporters of Smith were also present during the event. Smith was originally reluctant to look over the manuscript, but after he claimed its connection to Egyptian hieroglyphics, the room was in great astonish. After the excitement in the room began to cool down, Caswell revealed that the contents of the manuscript were nothing more than a common Greek psalter and Smith then, quote, stepped out, unquote, of the room. Yeah, and I wanted to give a little bit more elaboration on Please. that. Because if you read the book, he doesn't have Smith stepping out of the room right then. He actually has himself. Henry says, I believe it to be a Greek Psalter. He says that Joseph Smith misidentifies it as Egyptian hieroglyphics and a dictionary of Egyptian hieroglyphics. And then, uh, you know, Joseph says, no, it's this. And then he goes, okay. And then he asks Joseph Smith, Henry asks Joseph Smith, he says, well, can we look at those 
uh, Egyptian papyri again, the ones that I was showed by the shopkeeper the day before, because I would like to get your opinion as to what they represent, because up to now, I only have it secondhand from the shopkeeper and the other people, right? I'd like to hear it from you directly. And he says, so what is this thing here on the papyrus? And then according to Caswell, he looks up and Joseph Smith is gone. He's out of the room. And then, you know, he looks out and he sees him going down the street in a buggy. So that is the entirety of the appearance of Joseph Smith in this book. Yeah. All right. So uh, the Mormon prophet and Greek Psalter, this is the Warsaw Message, um, volume is, one. No, yeah, November 17th, 1843. So he goes back to November England. 15th. He publishes it. It's very popular. He publishes a second edition the next year. It's very popular. And apparently either the first or the second they got hold of here in Warsaw, right? Warsaw, Illinois, right? It's 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 nearby. This is the same place as the Warsaw Signal had their yeah. newspaper. And so they relate the story as well. Do you want me yeah, to read this or do you want to, Bill? Feel free to. It's November 15th, though, I think. Well, I'll tell you. Well, maybe it is. Okay, it probably is. It's very small, and that could be a five yeah. or a seven. Okay. We lately heard a story. This from the Warsaw message. We lately heard a story which, while it may make us mourn over the depravity of human nature, serves to show, among many similar facts, the low artifices and cunning tricks to which the Mormon prophet will resort in order to impose upon the gullibility of his followers. I read it that because it's not giving us any facts, just opinion. The story is in this wise and can be substantiated by respectable witnesses. Okay. I don't know if that's true. Sometime since, I'm aware of one witness. Sometime since, Professor Caswell... Well, late of Kemper College near St. Louis, an Episcopal clergyman of reputation, being about to leave this country for England, paid a visit to Smith and the Saints. So maybe he doesn't have an English accent. Anyway, in order that he might be better able to represent the imposture to the British people. It so happened that the professor had in his possession a Greek Psalter of great age, one that had been in the family for several hundred years. This book, as a relic of antiquity, was a curiosity to anyone, but to some of the saints who happened to see it, it was a marvel and a wonder. Supposing its origin to have been as ancient, at least, as the prophet's Egyptian mummy, and not knowing but the professor had dug it from the bowels of the same sacred hill in western New York when sprung the Holy Book of Mormon, they importuned him to allow Brother Joseph an opportunity of translating it. Continuing from the story in the Warsaw Message. The professor reluctantly assented to the proposal and accompanied by a number of the anxious brethren repaired to the residence of the prophet. The remarkable book was handed him. Joe took it, examined its old and worn leaves and turned over its musty pages. Expectation was now upon tiptoe. Brethren looked at one another, at the book, then at the prophet. It was a most interesting scene. Presently, the spirit of prophecy began to arise within him. I guess you got to fill these pages with something, I tell you. I'm just looking for facts. Presently, the spirit of prophecy began to arise within him, and he opened his mouth and spoke, proving that he's not a ventriloquist, at least. Most people open their mouth to speak. That wonderful power which enables him to see as far through a millstone as could Moses or Elijah of old, oh my gosh, had already in the twinkling of an eye made those rough and uncouth characters as plain to him as the nose on the face of the professor. This book, said he, finally they get to quoting the book. This book, said he, I pronounce to be a dictionary of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. The brethren present were greatly astonished at this exhibition of their prophet's power of revealing hidden things. After their exaltation had somewhat subsided, the professor coolly told them that their prophet was a base imposter and that the book before them was but a plain Greek psalter. Joe stepped out. 
Such is the manner in which this errant knave imposes upon his followers, and such is the manner in which his knavery is sometimes exposed, yet strange that people continue to believe him. <sighs> Professor Caswell, since his sojourn in England, has published a work entitled Three Days at Nauvoo, in which this rich scene is represented in an engraving. Which we saw, so which was the image we showed. And then we get a couple of interaction, but what's that? I, I, I think that's wrong, because Three nights, three Days in Nauvoo was the title of his 1842 account, which I do not think has the engraving. It's the second edition that has the engraving and has a different title, but regardless. Yeah, well, that would have been November 15th, 1843. Would that have been after the second edition? Mm, well, it was published in 1843. Right. I don't know what date. Yeah, I'm just saying if the Warsaw message was November 15th of 1843, that maybe that would have came after the second edition was published, and hence that might have been what they were using. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we end up with a couple of interactions from church leaders in this uh, this historical uh, event. And so Coswell says that he told this incident to a Mormon who went by, he refers to him as doctor, and RFM and I were trying to kind of ensure that we're being accurate here, but even the Maxwell Institute makes the connection that this is Dr. Uh, Willard Richards. A Mormon think called him William Richards, so I couldn't find that name in the Caswell book, but either Mormon think just did a typo or somewhere in the documents, Willard Richards is referred to maybe by Coswell as William Richards, but regardless, he uh, he says that he told this incident to Mormon apostle, Dr. Willard Richards, who said, quote, sometimes Mr. Smith speaks as a mere man. If he gave a wrong opinion respecting the book, he spoke as a mere man, unquote. And, you know, we have this quote in Mormonism, right? A prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. Hmm. Um, and so you can the sense, beginning of the pedigree. Yeah. And so you can sense this sort of theology. It, it seems reasonable that Henry would have heard Willard Richards say such a thing. The other thing I note here is that it makes it so that anytime Joseph Smith's wrong, then he then he's not a prophet. Anytime he's right, he's a prophet. And it kind of is creating a Texas sharpshooter of scent in a sense mm -hmm. that we only look at the the hits and we just ignore the misses. Right. Um, but but at least to note that. And folks, I, most folks will know this. Dr. Willard Richards was a physician, midwife, nurse trainer, and an early leader in the Latter-day Saint movement. I got to this off Wikipedia as well. He served as second counselor to church president Brigham Young in the and first president of Joseph and Hiram. Don't forget that. Yeah, he was behind the door at the cane. Maybe he that was, one right there. He did him in. Yeah. It was the, Willard, yeah, Willard Richards some, in the jail cell with a cane. Some sources, huh? Uh, he was a first counselor, sorry, second counselor in the first presidency uh, from 1847 until his death. By the way, from my reading of the book, <laughs> yeah, I don't think he told this incident to Willard Richards later. Willard Richards is basically accompanying him. He's sort of his guide throughout the town. And according to the way Caswell tells the story, if I'm remembering it correctly, Willard Richards was among the group of Mormons who was there with Joseph Smith. When this encounter happened, Joseph Smith left. And then after Joseph Smith leaves, uh, they get into this huge religious debate about Church of England versus Mormons versus apostates versus Catholics. In other words, change the subject. Well, it's, it's all about religion, right? <clears throat> and so they're all slamming the Anglican church. And of course, Caswell is reporting this, so we would expect him to win the argument. 
but he does very well, at least according to his own account, and rebuffs their arguments. And then he says, well, since you've been so free to tell me what you think about my church, let me tell you what I think about your church and yeah. your prophet. Do you remember? He couldn't even tell me that this was a, a Greek Psalter. He misidentified it. And it was in that context, I think, that uh, the doctor, as he's referred to throughout the book, the doctor, the capital D, that's one of the reasons it's difficult to figure out exactly who he's talking about all the time, yeah. responded with this. Yeah. And so we get all of this information from Henry Caswell, right. and it leaves us not really knowing how much of the story is true or not true, what happened, what didn't. And so we're trying to go over the kind of the basic facts, but there's this other interaction. You pointed this out today with John Taylor. This was in the public discussion. This is kind of a debate that John Taylor has with uh, Reverend C.W. Cleave, James Robertson, and Philip uh, Cater. Yeah, it was a famous and, debate in France. Yeah, and this was Liverpool. This was published in Liverpool, 1850. Mm -hmm. And uh, Elder John Taylor is in this debate with these other men. And there's a, a moment where a conversation ensues around this incident. And ironically, the first name, the first words on this pamphlet are, it's three nights, public discussion. And yeah. he's going to talk about the book, Three Days at Nauvoo. Yeah. Just a literary curiosity, if you will. Yeah. Um, and my hunch is, based on the title and based on the fact that he engaged three different people, he probably debated a different person three nights in a row. Either that or it was Kwaku, Brandon, and Brad. All yeah, you missed you missed one of them, but that's okay. I said Kwaku, well, Kwaku Carden. Yeah, no Brandon. And the most let's important go. one, too. <laughs> okay. Let's go Carden. So, let's go Carden. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to read this? If you yeah, want please, to read, because otherwise to I'm going to sneeze again. Yeah, okay. Please. So here's John Taylor. It's 1850. He's over there, and I'm pretty sure this is happening in France, so he publishes it in uh, Liverpool. But it's in the context of this debate. This story has gotten around, as you might imagine. And so he's got to respond to the story that Caswell's telling about Joseph Smith not being able to tell a Greek Psalter and thinking it's Egyptian dictionary. Concerning Mr. Caswell, and this is John Taylor quoting himself. He published this. So he's the one recounting his own words and the words of others in the course of this debate. Concerning Mr. Caswell, I was at Nauvoo during the time of his visit. He came for the purpose of looking for evil. He was a wicked man and associated with reprobates, mobocrats, and murderers. Okay, this is the most outlandish kind of ad hominem. And it's something that, as I look back on the historical record, it seems like many leaders of the church have absolutely no problem engaging in. I mean, back then it was mobocrats, today it's lazy learners and lax disciples. But it has nothing to do with what he said, and actually, it's not even true. This is an Anglican minister who's just going up the Mississippi River to visit with the Mormons for three days. That's all he's doing. And uh, we'll get to that more. There's nothing in his book about being a reprobate, a mobocrat, or a murderer, or about being uh, looking for evil, or being a wicked man for crying out loud. This is all just nonsense that John Taylor is spewing in order to try and impugn this man's character. There is no evidence outside of this quote from John Taylor that Henry ever had any kind of life where he made choices that people could judge him as being a scoundrel. No, not at all. No. So this is all bollocks. Okay, so John Taylor goes on. 
It is, I suppose, true that he was a reverend gentleman, but it has been no uncommon thing with us to witness associations of this kind, nor for reverend gentlemen, so-called, to be found leading on mobs to deeds of plunder and death, which, of course, this guy never did. Okay, I saw Mr. Caswall in the printing office at Nauvoo. He had with him an old manuscript and professed to be anxious to know what it was. First off, notice that John Taylor confirms the truth of what Caswell says, that he was present in Nauvoo. He was in town, uh, at least at a printing office, and he has with him an old manuscript. So this much has been confirmed by John Taylor. He is going to take issue with his story. John Taylor goes on, I looked at it and told him that I believed it was a Greek manuscript. In his book, he states that it was a Greek Psalter, but that none of the Mormons told him what it was. Herein is a falsehood, for I told him. Yet these are the men and books that we are to have our evidence from. Okay? Yeah. So that's what he says in 1850 about his recollection. And, of course, that would tend to undermine what it is that um, uh, Henry Ca uh, Caswell said. Although I'm not sure that he ever said that no Mormons could tell him what it was. I think that's an implication uh, in his book. So he, this may be a bit of a straw man. I'm not sure. But this is what John Taylor's doing with this story in order to defeat it. Now, the interesting thing, folks, the interesting thing is that if you go to Fair Mormon, they have an article about the Greek Psalter and Henry Coswell. And they're trying to show that Henry Coswell is not to be believed. And as part of their defense in that article at Fair Mormon, they quote this from John Taylor. And they give it a footnote three, and at the bottom is this very footnote that's at the bottom of the screen there. And as soon as it said Liverpool, John Taylor, 1850, I went, you have got to be kidding me. They're really going to quote John Taylor as an authoritative source from his 1850 debate with these three reverend ministers because I know just as well as the guys at Fair Mormon what's in there. And it's a huge whopper from, not from Henry Caswell, but from John Taylor himself. And by the way, it's on the very same page of the pamphlet. It's page eight. If you read there at the top of page eight, which is, of course, rather small here, but you can find it on the Internet. He starts at the top of page eight saying, a, ma a man that will tell one falsehood to injure an innocent people will tell 500 if necessary for the same object. And of course, here he's talking about Henry Coswell because he just caught him in this lie, according to John Taylor's testimony, which is not corroborated by anybody else either. What but does John Taylor on, say later on in the same page? In the same paragraph, my friend. We are accused here of polygamy and actions of the most indelicate, obscene, and disgusting. This is where he lies about the Mormons practicing polygamy. Uh, such that none but a corrupt and depraved heart could have contrived. These things are too outrageous to admit of belief. Although he believes them and actually practices them because he had so a he admits they're outrageous. Home in Utah. Yes. He admits they're outrageous. Yes. So therefore... Leaving the sisters of the white veil, the black veil, and all the other veils. This is not from Caswell. This is, I think, from Jim Bennett, or John Bennett. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. Uh, <laughs> and all the other veils, with those gentlemen to dispose of, together with their authors, as they think best, I shall content myself by reading our views of chastity and marriage from a work published by us, containing some of the articles of our faith. He then goes to Doctrine and Covenants, page 330 in his edition, which is section 101. One, which is no longer section 101, though it was in the 1835 edition and also continuing to 1850. And this is where the church 
officially denied that they were practicing plural marriage. So, and he quotes um, those. You can almost see him. He quotes uh, verses one, two, three, and four there on that left side, bottom of page eight. And that's his response to deny that the saints are practicing plural marriage when they actually are practicing it. And he is a practitioner and he knows it. And yet he has the chutzpah to say before this in regards to Henry Caswell that a man that will tell one falsehood to injure an innocent people will tell 500 if necessary for the same object. Well, physician, heal thyself. The other thing that's amazing, right, Bill, is that the people at Fair Mormon know this. It's on the same freaking page. Yeah. But they are not going to tell their audience about this. They want their audience to believe John Taylor and what he says happened with his encounter that he says, and he's the only witness to that, with Henry Caswell. And yet on the same page in the same paragraph, he's lying his ass off about polygamy and Mormons practicing it. Yeah, so if we go to the page before, he has all this ad hominem about uh, Henry, and then he says, I looked at it and told him that I believed it was a Greek manuscript. In his book, he states that it was a Greek Psalter, but that none of the Mormons told him that's what it was. Herein is a falsehood, for I told him, yet there are men and books that we are to have our evidence from. So in other words, John Taylor says, I disagree vehemently with Henry Coswell. He says that no one knew what it was, and Joseph Smith got it wrong, and I'm telling you that I told Henry that it was a Greek Psalter from the beginning. And we're to ask ourselves whether we believe John Taylor or Henry Coswell, and all we have to do is look in the same section of the book where he's talking about Henry Coswell, and he starts off incriminating himself by saying, a man that will tell one falsehood to injure an innocent people will tell 500 if necessary, for the same object, and then goes on to deny polygamy in 1850. Mm -hmm. We are accused here of polygamy. These things are too outrageous to admit of belief. They are so outrageous that he lies about them rather than admit them, and he admits that the belief, because it's true, is in fact outrageous. Right, um, right. He characterizes it and agrees with it as being outrageous. But he tries yep. to do this in terms of being so upset and indignant by this question even being asked of him. He's clutching yep. his pearls like nobody's business. Yeah. And then he quotes um, a passage from the Doctrine and Covenants that almost certainly was not true when it was originally published and certainly wasn't true in 1850. Yeah. With those gentlemen to dispose of, together with their authors as they think best, I shall content myself by reading our views on chastity and marriage from a work published by us containing some of the articles of our faith. And he proceeds to read Doctrine and Covenants, Old Section 101, which was that the church practices monogamy in the same year that the church is about to remove Section 101 by Brigham Young and put in a new section, renumber them essentially. And from that point forward, the church will openly be admitting that it's polygamist. Yeah, I think the timeline is 1852 was when Brigham Young goes public and lets the cat out of the bag. So that's two years later. And I think they had to wait till 1876 for the next edition. How many wives does John Taylor Cutters? have at this point? I think two. Yeah. And, and he two knows. Or two plural wives. Yeah. And he knows that all of the top leaders of the church are practicing polygamy by this point. And oh, he yeah. knows that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy as he's lying to these ministers across the waters about what was going on. Yes, and I would expect that if a man will tell one falsehood to injure an innocent people, 
that another man will tell a falsehood to protect as he sees it and defend an innocent people. Yeah. So the question is, who would you trust under oath, Henry Coswell or John Taylor? And the data seems to indicate that Henry's the more trustworthy source. Well, I would look at it this way. This is one of the countervailing pieces of evidence, and there's not a lot of evidence to look at, but this is a countervailing piece of evidence. But I think that given the fact that uh, we only have John Taylor's word for this, it's eight years later, and on the same page, he's telling a huge whopper about not practicing polygamy. I think that almost zeroes out. It's still evidence that needs to be considered, but it's certainly been diminished in its evidentiary value by the fact that John Taylor does an incredible job of impeaching himself as a witness. Yeah. Yep. So times and seasons, number 23, October 15th, 1843, reward of merit. It will be recollected by some that a Mr. Coswell, again, got the name wrong, professing to be an Episcopal minister, came to the city some 12 or 18 months ago. He had with him an old manuscript professing to be ignorant of its contents and came to Joseph Smith, as he said, for the purpose of having it translated. Mr. Smith had a little conversation with him, treated him with civility, but as the gentleman seemed very much afraid of his document, he declined having anything to do with it. Okay, so, so the Times and Seasons now admits that there was an interaction between Caswell and Joseph Smith, and they try and make up a story, and I'm so sorry, but this sounds like a made-up story, because what on earth does it mean, Bill, real? This last sentence that Mr. Smith had a little conversation with him, Caswell, and treated him with civility, but as the gentleman, Caswell, seemed very much afraid of his document, the Greek Psalter. What does that mean? He was afraid of his own book? This seems silly, but this is why this story says that Joseph Smith declined having anything to do with it because Caswell seemed afraid of his own book. That seems odd. Yeah, that's a strange way to try to explain away Caswell's recounting of the story. Right. Yeah. And we don't have totally. any place apparently where Joseph Smith comes out and says, no, this didn't happen. Or anybody else who may or may not have been present in the same room, at least they were according to Caswell, who comes forward and says, no, that's not the way it happened. This is how it went down. Yeah. In fact, you can tell when they say Mr. Smith had a little conversation with him and treated him with civility that the author of that statement doesn't really want to get into the nuts and bolts of what was talked about. Right. Why not? Why not mention it? It's yeah. 1843. It's October 15th. Joseph Smith could tell the editor if he's not the editor himself, he could mention it and have it put in there and sign it as a declaration in front of all these witnesses or whatever kind of affidavit they want to make. They made a lot of them back then. I guess they still do today. But really, this is their defense. This is the official defense of the church that this didn't happen. Yeah, seems strange, doesn't it? It does to me. The Reverend Gentleman afterward published a book informing the inhabitants, same document, by the way, Times and Seasons, October 15th, 43, uh, that he had been to Nauvoo, had seen the prophet, had conversed with the Mormons, and had heard a Mr. Kilborn, a very conspicuous character in our neighborhood, and who, according to Mr. Caswell's account, had been robbed of more than half of the inhabitants of Iowa, possessed by Mormon, possessed by the Mormons, relate many wonderful stories after telling all the tales that he had heard, went to making others in regular Episcopal order out of whole cloth and published his mishappen batch to the I world think, as a history of Mormonism. Yeah, I think that's misshapen. 
Oh, yes, misshapen. Oh, gotcha. Okay, misshapen batch to the world as a history of Mormonism. Right. Thus, as a reward of merit for publishing detraction and falsehoods already concocted and adding a very splendid edition of his own. Very flowery language, but very little is being said here. You got to fill, fill those newspapers with something, I'm telling you. Times and yeah. seasons as well as the Warsaw message. He has proven himself worthy of being exalted to the honor of bearing... Uh, the sacerdotal robes. Sacerdotal, yeah. Sacerdotal That's a big robes. Word means priestly. I had to go over to the private chat and look at Maven's uh, pronunci- <laughs> pronunciation key. Uh, I know Maven in the, in the private chat put in the uh, uh, the phonetic spelling. Yes. Sacerdotal. Yeah, sacerdotal. So the sacerdotal robes and of being raised to the very high and dignified office of curate in the English church. He has truly gained himself unfading laurels. By the way, when they tell the facts here about Mr. Henry Coswell, he seems to come across as a outstanding minister who's worked his way up in his profession. Yeah. They're, they're being as sarcastic and as they possibly can be, but the facts remain that he went to England and he got uh, he was made a curate. I, yeah. Did they say curate in England? We may say curate, potato, potato, whatever. He has truly gained himself unfading laurels and by continuing and well-doing and assisting some of the uh, Reverend Blackguards whom the Church of England have employed in England to abuse the Mormons, he may perhaps gain further honors. So, Wow. So what I'm hearing here is a lot of language being used to slander his character. Yeah. But when it comes to the actual facts of what happened, they don't give any facts. They just, Mm -hmm. they admit as much as they contest, he has a civil discussion brief with Joseph Smith. And what, what was it that that said? Uh, I think it was two slides before this in the first part of the same article from Times and Seasons. Had a little conversation with him and treated him with civility. But as the gentleman seemed very much afraid of his document, he declined having anything to do with it. Yeah. Yep. There's Joseph uh, Smith. Here comes Henry Castle with his Greek Psalter. Wow. Henry, you seem very, very afraid of that Greek Psalter you're carrying. I don't think I'll have anything to do with that book. Bye-bye. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense at all. I'm, ha- I'm having trouble picturing how this goes down. Yeah. The following we clip from the Chicago Democrat, the Reverend Mr. Coswell, author of the History of the Mormons, late of the American Episcopal Church, has been admitted to the privileges of the English Church under the provisions of a special act of parliament he has also been appointed to a curacy. That to me seems like uh, uh, a recommendation of flying colors other than they see anybody who's outside the church as being an enemy. And their comment from the page before was that he had worked his way up and could now use his position to slander and hurt the Mormons. But the reality is the facts that they're sharing is that this man seems to have had such a high reputation that they made an exception to the rule to get him into the office that he was entered into. Yeah, and their sarcasm may have been uh, well-directed only because we just had a comment that went up on the screen, which I I don't know is correct, but it probably is. Someone saying that a curate is a low office in the Church of England. It would probably be like a bishop over a uh, an LDS church ward. Yeah. It's a pastor of a parish, is what Mary Jo O'Grady is telling us. So they're making fun of him. Yes. Okay, Times and Seasons, uh, October 15th, 1843. I don't think we just did that. I don't know if this is a different part. Let me look here. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we just skipped past it. Thanks. All right. So Maxwell Institute, um, this was an article done by Mark Ashurst McGee. He's a historian with the Church you know him, Department. You don't you, Bill? Uh, I have met Mark uh, face-to-face. Uh, I have interviewed him on Mormon Discussion, you know, years and years ago, back when I first started, probably 2013, 2014. Um, Mark has done a lot of research on uh, Moroni as a guardian spirit of treasure digs. Uh, that's one of the expert areas that Mark has written on, but he tackles this article, a one-sided view of Mormon origins. It was published at the Maxwell Institute at BYU. It's yeah, a review of Grant Palmer's book. Yeah, and used to be uh, farms was what the Maxwell Institute used to be. Um, so he says, Coswell wrote that when he challenged Latter-day Saint Apostle Willard Richards with Smith's mistaken identification, Richards responded that sometimes Mr. Smith speaks as a prophet and sometimes as a mere man, knowing that Smith had a great interest in languages and studied them when he could. Richards understood this, but Coswell failed to grasp the distinction. Apparently, Palmer struggles with the distinction as well. He takes the episode as evidence against Joseph's ability to translate anything. For the record, by the way, I know he's creating an explanation that essentially says that Joseph Smith, in a secular way, tried to translate the Greek Psalter that Henry presented to him. But what he is inevitably doing is admitting that Joseph Smith responded the way that Coswell uh, accuses him of responding. Because well, it doesn't seem he's challenging yeah. the facts at all. He's just no. trying to put a particular spin on those facts, which he accepts. And, you know, Caswell goes on to give his response to Richards when Richards says this. You know, sometimes Mr. Smith speaks as a prophet and sometimes as a mere man. And Caswell says, well, that doesn't help anything because if he's speaking as a prophet, then he was wrong. If he's speaking as a man, then he's 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 speaking for all intents and purposes like a prophet. So what you're saying is anytime he makes a mistake, you're going to give him the out of he's speaking as a man. Yeah. Anytime yeah. he's caught in an error while he's speaking as a man. And that this seemed kind of, I don't know, post hoc rationalizations to our friend Henry Caswell. And I got to agree with him. That's what it seems yeah. like to me, too. And this is the same explanation that Don Bradley came up with for the Kinderhook plates, yeah. which is that Joseph Smith is doing a secular translation. We can't hold him accountable to his holy office of prophet, seer, revelator, translator. translator. Instead, Joseph Smith is choosing in this moment to step outside of his prophetic mantle and to try to just be a scholar and deal with these documents as somebody who has the ability to translate them, which is also absurd because Joseph Smith has no ability to translate outside of the alleged idea uh, that Joseph Smith could translate using revelation. Yeah. It's an argument I wouldn't want to have to try to make. Yeah. And uh, Wikipedia says Smith may have had enough knowledge. You can bet your ass somebody from fair Mormon or the Maxwell Institute put this in. Right. Smith may have had enough knowledge of the Greek language to avoid an incorrect identification of the Psalter. On November 20th, 1835, Oliver Cowdery gifted Smith a Hebrew and Greek lexicon. Smith also reported that he spent time studying the Greek language at home, which would have been prior to this encounter with Henry Coswell. And if I remember right, when Joseph Smith was in Kirtland, uh, they had the School of the Prophets up in the temple, and there was a Hebrew teacher that came. I forget what the guy's name was, but if you said it, I would know it. Um, a Hebrew teacher that Josiah Satius or Josiah. Yeah, Satius. yes. 
Yep. And he came and he taught Joseph Smith and others in the school of the prophets Hebrew uh, on a regular basis for a time period. Yeah. I think that was at the beginning of 1836. Yeah. And so, we should note here that part of the evidence that would suggest that Henry was making up the part of the story about how Joseph Smith responded to this document is the fact that Joseph did have some training in identifying Hebrew characters and Greek characters. And when he saw this Greek um, Psalter, he it would have been reasonable for him to have noticed that the characters were Hebrew or Greek. The, the trouble with this story is, and I put this down below, while Smith may have had enough knowledge to avoid incorrect identification, it seems that he identified the Greek or Hebrew correctly. It would have, in other words, I'm, let me say it differently. Uh, let me say this. Well, again. That had Smith, you missed the hat yeah. that had he identified. Yeah. Had he identified the Greek or Hebrew correctly, it would have been evidence that he got something right. And you can bet your ass that somebody who's telling these stories, John Taylor or otherwise, the times and seasons, would have sure as hell put that account into the narrative. The fact that it's left out indicates strongly that Joseph Smith never identified anything correctly about this document. You know, that's an excellent point that you make there. If Joseph Smith had been handed the book during this brief but civil discussion, that he had with Henry Caswell and looked at it. If he, if this argument is correct, that he would have known it was Greek, then why doesn't he identify it as Greek? And everybody goes, wow, our prophet is number one. And Henry Caswell goes, okay, he knows what Greek is. Yeah, but he doesn't do that because it's not in the record at all. And there's plenty of opportunity in John Taylor's words. There's plenty of opportunity in times and seasons for, and it's the, it's the logical thing to say when somebody actually is lying about how events transpired. You know, that's really a good point you make because this is really, this argument is one that it occurred to me. And I think it's probably the strongest argument against Caswell's version of events. Now, your take on that has certainly diminished its power and force. But Joseph Smith gets Greek lexicon from Oliver he mentions in his diary that he was studying it at least on one day. However, this is at the end of 1835, which is six and a half years before Henry Caswell shows up. I think that the historical record is pretty clear that Joseph did not focus on Greek at all and may not have focused on it beyond one day looking at that part of the, the primer, Bill. And yeah. we know that he focuses on Hebrew. That's where, that's where his love is. And then on Adamic, and on Egyptian when those papyri roll into town. So yeah, this is, um, the question is, could he recognize a handwritten manuscript on parchment from 600 years earlier, the one that was given to him by Henry Caswell, which we don't have to look at, but we have seen similar ones. And would he have identified that as Greek based upon his, I think, just passing knowledge of the subject from six and a half years before? That's the yeah. question. Now, we certainly know that Joseph Smith had Egyptian on the brain at this time. This happens in August 19th of 1842. The Book of Abraham has just been published in the Times and Seasons in the March 1st edition and then in the March 15th edition. Joseph Smith has been working on this uh, Abraham, excuse me, 
Egyptian alphabet and grammar for perhaps years since 1835, off and on, and probably a lot more in preparation for getting this thing published. And in the alphabet and grammar documents, you see that what they have is they have a margin, and then they have a character or a part of a character, and then they have written next to it their interpretation of that character. And it is possible that even though I don't think that Henry Caswell was aware of the Egyptian alphabet and grammar that Joseph Smith was working on, he doesn't mention ever seeing it, it is possible that this Greek Psalter with capitalized letters in a very illuminated and intricate kind of way at the beginning of each one may have immediately presented itself to Joseph Smith's mind as a dictionary. That there is a character yeah. here on the left and then there is language out after it, which is actually the body of the psalm. Yeah, and so what Joseph fact, Smith I was says... Add this. So, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add, this is the Egyptian alphabet and grammar that Joseph Smith and his scribes created. And you can see a character, like you're saying, a character on the left with the translation of the Book of Abraham, uh, the Book of Abraham text, the English Book of Abraham text that we consider sacred writ, compared with the Egyptian papyri on the left, Joseph had it so that every symbol equaled a lot of words. And so a symbol would show up in the left column and then a paragraph of words of meaning he was making out of each symbol. Right. And so you can see why that it makes a, a certain degree of sense. If he doesn't immediately recognize it as Greek letters, then it would look like a dictionary. It looks like what he's been working on is his dictionary of the Egyptian language, which is why he immediately, according to Caswell, identifies it as an Egyptian dictionary. Yeah. And, and to note, too, I went back to this picture of the event because Joseph Smith's out of town. Caswell comes into town. He shows a couple people his uh, his Greek uh, Psalter and uh, uh, the rumbling start to start to build up in the community. People are like, oh, so Joseph Smith comes back tomorrow and he's going to look at this ancient text. So Joseph sits in the down. Uh, Henry presents him the Greek Psalter. There is a room of people who have been. Uh, getting excited over the course of the last 24 hours. And now there's a lot of pressure um, on the prophet Joseph Smith to perform in this moment and mm -hmm. to show up Henry and to prove his uh, prophetic mantle to the crowd. And so you can sense why maybe being handed this and all the pressure that's going on in the room, why Joseph might've taken this document and quickly put Henry in his place saying he was wrong and then give his own description of what this uh, document is. Yeah, and psychologically speaking, Henry may have just played this exactly right because according to him, and it's really only his account that we have, yeah. he hands it to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith asks if he knows what it is. Caswell, who apparently has some compunction about lying, tells the truth and says that he believes it to be a Greek Psalter. And Joseph Smith's character is such that it does not surprise me that his response would be, no, you're wrong. Let me tell you what it really is. So it may have been the very fact that he identified it as his belief that it's a Greek Psalter. Of course, it was more than a belief. He knew it, but he says, I believe it to be a Greek Psalter. It doesn't surprise me. This sounds exactly like the Joseph Smith that I read about in church history not agreeing with someone as to what an ancient document is, 
but disputing it with them because Joseph Smith is the one who has to be shown to be right. How many times does Joseph Smith take an item and rename it, repurpose it, and turn out to be wrong? So we have the Book of Abraham Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith repurposes. We have a skeleton that he repurposes as self, right? Yeah. Um, There's a bunch of rocks in Adam on Diamond. They become an altar that Adam and Eve sacrificed at. Joseph Smith can't trip over anything in America without it having ancient and religious significance. And he will tell the audience what it is. And he has no problem putting somebody in their place. Hiram Page attempts to translate with his own seer stone, and Joseph puts the kibosh on that extremely quickly. Um, there are just seems to be, if you go through church history, we could probably come up with 30 to 50 times that Joseph Smith either repurposes an object or a thing, or he takes someone else making a claim and puts them in their place and and then comes up with a new claim and says, nope, you're wrong, I'm right. Right, and that uh, comes up with the stories of the angels as well. Somebody will come up to him and say, hey, I had an angel appear to me the other day, and he told me this. And Joseph Smith says, well, what color was his hair? And the guy says it was sandy-colored, and Joseph Smith says, well, that wasn't a real angel because no angels have sandy-colored hair, idiot. Right. And then somebody else, or it might be the same person, comes up with another angel story. And Joseph Smith says, well, what were they wearing? And the guy describes his whatever he was wearing. And Joseph Smith says, ha ha, you're wrong. That's a fake angel because that's not what angels wear in heaven. This is why I say that this really does sound like Joseph Smith to me is being described by Henry Caswell. Yeah, totally. All right. So the next, I just wanted to make a note of this. If you are going to believe Mark Ashurst McGee and Fair Mormon, then what you have to come, what you have to arrive at in Mormonism is that Joseph Smith is a translator in numerous kinds of ways and never consistent. So the Book of Mormon is an actual ancient document inscribed in reformed Egyptian on plates that are golden color. Joseph Smith is working with those plates with a seer stone and a hat. And he is translating an actual ancient document that he has in his possession. The Book of Abraham, we now know that it is not the papyri that Joseph Smith had. So now the new story that we're coming up with is that that papyri acted as a catalyst. Joseph thinks he's looking at an ancient document. He's actually looking at something completely unrelated. And God gives him a revelation inside his head without correcting him on his misunderstanding and proceeds to give him then the book of Abraham. You have the book of Moses, which is given to him entirely as a revelation as he's working out the Bible revision. Then you've got the Bible revision itself, which is shown to be plagiarized, at least in part from Adam Clark's commentary. Of course, it has other things in it too, but some of that also has connections to modern contemporary sources that Smith had as well but plagiarizes from Adam Clark's commentary, but proposes that it's a restoration of the Bible from its original form. Then you've got the Kinderhook plates in the Greek Psalter, which according to apologists, this would have been a secular translation that Joseph Smith was doing. So sure, he got it wrong. He's not a very good translator in the secular way anyway. And then you brought up another one, DNC section seven. I brought it up when we were talking on the phone before the show, folks. Yes, yes, that's what I mean, by the way, in our conversation before the show. A translation of parchment that Joseph Smith sees 
um, again, remind remote viewing. He uses yeah. remote viewing and sees a parchment that's on the other side of the of the water, and he proceeds to then give us uh, the answer. And by the way, this comes up because Joseph Smith is debating with another person. By the way, going back to the previous slide where you and I were going, hey, Joseph Smith corrects people and repurposes things all the time. He's in a debate with another believer about whether John lived or whether he died. And then Joseph goes, well, I'll just ask. And he proceeds to ask for a revelation. And his revelation, of course, confirms that Joseph Smith was right and the other person was wrong. So once again, Joseph Smith does the very same thing that he does uh, to Henry Coswell that uh, Mark Ashurst McGee reports on. Gene asks, what color was the parchment? I think that the only thing that um, Henry Coswell said that I recall was that it was discolored. So I don't know if yeah. that helps at all. No, right. My point here is that when you take the collective 20,000 foot view of all the translation productions that Joseph Smith did, if we buy into the apologetic argument for how he did it, every one of these translation methods is different than the others. And there's no consistency. And such seems extremely weird when he has no expertise as a secular translator. And he really should be more than happy to use the actual thing he can do, which is to ask God and from God's mouth to his ears, hmm. be able to report revelation and tell Joseph Smith exactly what things are, rather than have the prophet go off on his own, trying to do secular translations when he's unqualified to do so. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well put. All right. And then I don't want to go through this, but you can go on Mormon Think. They list evidence against the event. The We've already kind of mentioned these. Grant Palmer's admission that we only have Professor Caswell's view of the event. That's not exactly true. As you pointed out, John Taylor uh, and the Times and Seasons both admit that on some level, some of the facts are verifiable. Um, but we, we do acknowledge that Caswell's uh, saying how Joseph Smith responded He's the only one that we have a record of that being the case. The, right. He's, he's the only one who gives any response from Joseph Smith for any yes. verbal response. Yes. And then Professor Caswell was a reverend and critic of the church and was looking to find information to disprove Mormonism and its founder. Sure. But then the opposite side of the coin is true, too. So anytime that something is faith promoting, if the best evidence comes from believers of the church, then we should also be able to dismiss that just as strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Evidence supporting the account. Uh, we've gone through most of it. I'll leave this up for just a second. You're welcome to push pause, read all those, and uh, you'll have that. But that's on Mormon Thinks website. All right. Now I want to turn some time over to you because you found some interesting stuff as you dug into this story. Right, thank you. So I know there's a few slides here, but the main thing is this, is that after I had done my initial research on this, which was kind of surface level, reading the Fair Mormon article and the, the Mormon think, I was maybe 50, 51% that Caswell was telling the truth. I don't think there's any way to come down on a definite yes or no on either side of the story, given the evidence. But after I read the book itself and started thinking about some things, I come down now much closer to 75% that he's telling the truth. Not enough to find uh, guilt in a criminal case, but definitely enough to find for the plaintiff Caswell in a civil case. I would be very comfortable 
in a civil case finding as a juror that he's telling the truth. In other words, by a preponderance of the evidence, more than 50%. And this is why. Um, first off, let's go ahead and let's go to the Egyptian stuff because we talked about Caswell's account the day before he encounters Joseph Smith. It's April 18th. There's the shopkeeper. He shows him the, the papyri that's mounted behind the glass. And the first one, everybody here is able to identify as facsimile one when he describes it, right? But then there's the second thing that he describes. And we can get that off the page. We're not ready for that yet. Are we able to go back to what he describes on that second thing? Okay, the second papyrus. He says that the shopkeeper shows him a second papyrus, which actually ends up sounding kind of outlandish and unfamiliar to most people, and it would have been unfamiliar to me uh, very few years ago. But when he described it, I knew exactly what he was talking about, believe it or not. Actually, I got it wrong at first. I thought he was talking about facsimile too. And then I realized, no, he's talking about a different parchment that Joseph Smith had that is not part of the book of Abraham. Okay? So there on the, the screen is the part about pointing to the picture of Abraham. But now here's the part, okay? Turning to another of the drawers and pointing to a hieroglyphic representation, one of the Mormons said, Mr. Smith informs us that this picture is an emblem of redemption. Okay? Do you see those four little figures? Well, those are the four quarters of the earth. Now, that's what led me to facsimile 2 originally, but nothing else in facsimile 2 uh, matches. But it does match on this other papyrus. And do you see that big dog looking at the four figures? That is the old devil desiring to devour the four quarters of the earth. Look at this person keeping back the big dog. That is Christ keeping the devil from devouring the four quarters of the earth. So this is all on one parchment. And then he says, look down this way on the same parchment. This figure near the side is Jacob, and those are his two wives. Now, do you see those steps? What, I replied, do you mean those stripes across the dress of one of Jacob's wives? Yes, he said, that is Jacob's ladder. That, I remarked, is indeed curious because his ladder only goes up to the lady's waist. Now, Joseph Just to Smith know, had in his, yeah, go ahead. here's another instance of Joseph Smith repurposing a completely different document and giving it its own unique meaning that can, coincides with Mormon theology and Mormon beliefs and his prophetic mantle, but for which, as we can get to here in a moment, can be shown to just be completely not true. Right. He is looking, and Carrie Schertz had showed this in spades in a podcast he did a few months ago, is that whenever Joseph Smith looks at these papyri, all he can see is Bible figures doing Bible things. Yeah. And interestingly, he not only goes to the Old Testament, which he does for a lot of them, whether it's Enoch's pillar or the serpent in the Garden of Eden with the legs still on it, or um, Jacob's ladder, right? He also puts in these Egyptian papyri, New Testament figures. He's got Christ keeping the devil from devouring the four quarters of the earth. And that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I think that's even more remarkable than just having Old Testament figures on ancient papyrus. So do we have the actual papyrus that is being described here by Henry Caswell? Because the thing is, he gets it exactly right. This is the whole point of this, is that he gets it right. Now, do you have the papyrus itself? That's the line drawing. Okay, so this is one of the papyrus from the actual Joseph Smith papers. This is one of the Joseph Smith papyri. This is an almost complete representation of, of spell 125 from the Book of the Dead. This belonged to one of the female mummies, and I think her name was Nefer 
Ir Nebu. And this is her papyrus. Now, spell 125, and I'm going to go through this really quick because this isn't that important, but I find it fascinating anyway. Spell 125 is very important in a book of the dead because this is the scene where the deceased enters into the presence of Osiris and it's judgment time. And they have got to uh, name all 42 of the gods who are up there in the top, represented as sitting. They have to give them the correct names and they have to make the 42 negative confessions which means I haven't done this in my life, I haven't done this in my life, I haven't done this in my life. And I think each of those representations is associated with a certain God. So you got to get all those right. Otherwise, you're toast. You're not going to pass this with flying colors. And I thought but, remembering uh, strength in the sinews and marrow in the bones was a real nail biter. Oh, it's going to get worse. <laughs> it's going to get totally worse. Because, yeah, that's what's up there. You can actually see things kind of well in here. But I'll tell you... Um, but then what you have to do at the bottom center is you have to have your heart weighed in the balance against the feather of Mott. M-A-A-T is how it's transliterated, sometimes translated as truth, but it represents the divine order. And your heart has to balance in the scales with the divine order in order for you to pass the judgment. And once it does that, um, you are then presented to the presence. On the left, the big figure seated down with the crook and the flail, that's Osiris. The crook and the flail are the Egyptian emblems of royalty, I believe. And um, okay, so there's there's Osiris. You see him sitting there? And I'm using my cursor, so you can't see my cursor on your screen. Look who's right in front of Osiris's face. Now, Osiris is the figure that is representing Jesus, according to what Caswell's being told. This is Jesus Christ, not Osiris. Would it, would it be easier to go to the other image just because I think people can kind of see what's going on there? Sure. Yeah, we have a line drawing. And what we have to do is we have to go to that part. Yeah. Ooh. Is it it's gonna blurry. Be, yeah, it's, it's still easier, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think this line drawing was done by, was it Rhodes? Michael Rhodes? Yeah, this is, by the way, this is all from the Backyard Professor because I saw him use this line drawing once. And it's not so easy to see the papyrus. It's like the least well-preserved of any of the papyri as far as taking a picture of it and being able to see what the heck is on it. So this is a line drawing of the same thing. And over here, you've got Osiris, who is depicted or translated as being Jesus Christ. He's looking right across at the four sons of Horus standing on the top of that papyrus plant. And we already know what those are, right? Because we've looked at facsimile too. And we know that they represent the earth in its four quarters. By the way, these guys representing the earth in its four quarters make sense in this depiction. Given this radical Christianized interpretation of it, it makes sense, right, that these are the four quarters of the earth. These are the nations of the world. And I'm going to give it as my supposition that this is what was translated first as the four sons of Horus being the earth in its four quarters. And it was from here that Joseph Smith then recognized them in the bottom half of the hypocephalus facsimile one and applied the same definition to them there. <coughs> of course, Joseph Smith did not recognize them in the canopic, canopic jars in figure or facsimile one. And so they didn't get uh, labeled the same way, but he's looking right. right across at all these people, the entire inhabitants of the earth and look what's right behind him. That's the dog. And it, either he has a shaggy bottom around his belly. Oh no, he does. Those aren't flames coming up. Those are teats, because this is a female demon. It is named Amit, or sometimes it's transliterated Amut. 
But this is the female demon who is present for uh, the judgment scene because in case uh, the person who's being judged goofs up on any of the names or the of the gods or, you know, God forbid that the balance, it doesn't balance, her heart doesn't balance, this demon slash God is there ready to pounce and devour the heart of the person being brought in for judgment, which takes care of them instantly. They're gone. He's kind of like the old guy who tells you that your string isn't tied right. Exactly. And he's going to eat you up if you don't tie it correctly the first time. So there's a lot of pressure in this judgment scene. But this dog, this Amit individual, is what is being identified as Satan. And now behind Satan, the person who's being identified... uh, Well, look, there are two two descriptions of this. We'll get to this in a second. And if I'm getting one from one description and one from what Coswell said, then please forgive me. This is actually Thoth. He is the recorder in heaven. He's sort of like the Enoch figure. He keeps the records. And what he does is he's looking really close to make sure that this balancing act happens and it happens correctly. And once your heart balances with the feather of Mott, he records it so that you're you're recorded in the, the divine registry. Okay? Because everything has to be recorded. And then once that happens and the person is introduced into the presence of Osiris, who's still sitting there at the left. Yes. Okay. So there's Thoth, and we can see him better with his beak because he's an ibis. We can see him better there than we can on the papyrus. Now, having said all of that, down here on the right, down here on the right are two women. And the one who's on the far right is Nefer Ear Nebu. I think that's her name. This is the deceased lady. This is the lady who owns this uh, Book of the Dead in the first place. She's the one who's being introduced for judgment in Spell 125. And if you see the hands that are right behind her, like pushing her on stage, can you see those two arms on her right side, Bill? If you can see it, I'm going to trust that everybody else can see it. This is not the complete image because that would almost certainly be Anubis, who's presenting the god of the dead, the jackal-headed god, presenting the deceased into the presence of Osiris for the judgment. And you'll remember it's Anubis that Joseph Smith seems to cut the snout out of in the plate, the print plate, and then turns Anubis into a slave. Right, that's Facsimile 3. And Facsimile 3 is an abbreviated poor man's version of this same scene, where in that case it's Hor, H-O-R, or Horus, the priest, who owns that book of breathings, who's being introduced into the presence of Osiris. In that, you don't have the demon dog. uh, You don't have the weighing of the heart. It's much more simplified. And And by the way, I I have another copy of this kind of document, this Prayer 125, and so this is it here. So you can see sort of the same thing going on. Now, some things aren't in order. The beaked man is in front of the dog there instead of behind him. But it's the same sort of document. Now, Joseph Smith gives it his own Christian Mormon interpretation. But this is an Egyptian document that has nothing to do with Christianity and nothing to do with Mormonism. Oh, right. Absolutely. So once again, you can see Osiris. You can see the four sons of Horus. They're standing on the papyrus plant. You've got Thoth, who's right next, the scribe. Then behind him is Amit, the dog, demon, the female demon, there to dispatch anybody who doesn't pass the test. Then to Amit's right, to her right, we've got the, the weighing of the scales of the heart versus the, 
Mott Feather. And then to the right, we've got this other person being presented who's there for the judgment. Yeah. So, yeah. And by the way, this is, if this is going to be off screen, right, Anubis, it's very common to have Anubis also down there. It's a smaller version who is actually weighing the heart against right the here. feather. It's not a different figure. It's a representation of the same figure doing the same thing. I think of it like a comic book without the panels. So just because Anubis appears in one place in, in a uh, illustration doesn't mean he can't appear in another place doing something else. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. So if we can go back to the one we've got. Um, now, if you've got that, hey, Bill, can you pull up on your screen while keeping this still on this screen? Yeah. That description, or maybe I should find it. Actually, I can find it. Let me do that, okay? Because I've got it up here, and I want to see what it is. Now, if you look at this, you'll see exactly Match up the words, yeah. that Caswell is, is, is as exact, if not more so, with his description of what it is he says he was told by the shopkeeper about this particular papyrus. One of the Mormons said, this is from Caswell, so look at the figure while it's still on the screen, okay? Mr. Smith informs us that this picture is an emblem of redemption. Do you see those four little figures? Well, those are the four quarters of the earth. That makes sense because we know about facsimile too, don't we? And do you see that big dog looking at the four figures? That is the old devil desiring to devour the four quarters of the earth. Look at this person keeping back the big dog. That is Christ. Okay, this is just a little bit of a variation. That is Christ keeping the devil from devouring the four quarters of the earth. Now, in Caswell's account, it's Christ who is Thoth behind him, who is restraining the devil from devouring the four quarters of the earth. Look down this way. Now, this figure near the side is Jacob, and those are his two wives. Now, do you see those steps? What? I replied. Do you mean those stripes across the dress of one of Jacob's wives? Yes, he said. That is Jacob's ladder. That, I remarked, is indeed curious. Okay. Now, in this picture... If you look at this lady who's at the bottom right and look at her dress, you see she has pleats in her dress. And look at the series of pleats on the far left. And you will see that on that set of pleat, there are horizontal figures or lines drawn going up that pleat. Can you see those, Bill? Yes. Um... That's Jacob's ladder. Yeah, I was going to try to circle it on a different image let me move this over give me a second here yeah these two are supposed to be leah and rachel jacob's wives but this is going to be jacob's ladder and we have a, a close-up of that that was provided also by carrie shirts at the backyard professor who has his own wonderful podcast live every sunday evening at six o'clock mountain time as well as other podcasts at random times that i can't even keep track of anymore but that's the one that i know of is always going so here we go so there it's circled in red. Yeah. And so I'll put it back on the screen from the full picture, but you can see that it does sort of look like a ladder. Right. And if you can go to that other picture that I sent you that has the no Carrie's notes in it as well in the lower left quadrant. Of which picture? This one the here? The one that has the actual the arrows pointing at each of these rungs. Oh. Um, and if you don't have it, that's fine. But I this don't. is what is being identified as Jacob's ladder and caswell knows it goes right up to the lady's waist and he says are you talking about that pleat in the woman's dress he is being shown exactly this papyri and he's describing it exactly there we go 
So here we have that line drawing, the same line drawings in the upper left. The the full right side of that is a it's focused in, it's a, it's a blow up of the lady's dress. This is just the lady's dress, right? And there you can see where the arrows are pointing at all the different lines. And strangely, by the way, very strangely, you see the circle and the little figure in the circle, which looks like a guy. Is that Jacob after he got done climbing up his ladder, Bill? I don't know. Carrie and I have talked about it. And my impression is this is probably a smudge. And we may be suffering from the face on Mars syndrome and trying to see something or make uh, just a smudge interpreted as a human being. Because I don't think that would have been original. Now, if somebody yeah. drew it in there because they were convinced it was Jacob's Ladder and where's Jacob going to be, but at the top, I don't know. But it's probably just a smudge. Yeah. But the ladder is definite. Yep. Okay. So now having said that, having said that much, okay, the amazing thing is that Caswell is not the only person to identify either of these two major parts of this papyrus. The first part, you remember, has to do with the scene of redemption and there's uh, and the, the four sons and the devil and the person restraining him. In 1835, Oliver Cowdery in December of that year wrote a letter to a person and I actually have it all here. It's um, actually included here. I'm not gonna read it out of here, but this is volume four of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, Revelations and Translations. And they have this great footnote in here which I copied down word for word in a way that I could probably read better. So this is how Oliver Cowdery describes this same papyrus, spell 125, which Joseph had identified as coming from the, the scroll of Joseph. So this isn't from the Abraham scroll. This is from the Joseph scroll. And this is what Oliver Cowdery says. This is um, writing from Kirtland, Ohio, to a guy named William Fry in Lebanon, Illinois, 22nd December, 1835. It's from the Oliver Cowdery letter book. All right, here we go. Oliver Cowdery. The inner end of the same roll, Joseph's record, presents a representation of the judgment. At one view, you behold the Savior seated upon his throne. So in Oliver Cowdery's view, Osiris is the Savior, which is different from what Henry Caswell says. He says, Caswell, Caswell says that the Savior is actually restraining the Satan dog. Uh, Cujo is probably his name. And that's Thoth. But that part's different. But that's about the only part that's different. I'll read on. At one view, Oliver Cowdery says, you behold the Savior seated. You just muted yourself, RFM. I wasn't even on the screen. Yeah. Don't I'm finding new ways to mute myself. There you go. <laughs> okay, crowned and holding, at one view you behold the Savior, seated upon his throne, crowned and holding the scepters of righteousness and power, before whom also are assembled the twelve tribes of Israel, the nations, languages, and tongues of the earth. So there's the four sons of Horus, which we know from facsimile 2, represents the earth in its four quarters, right? Um... The kingdoms of the world over which Satan is represented is reigning. So there's the dog. Satan reigns over the earth because he's right there behind it or on the right of it in the, um, the papyrus. Um, Michael. Okay, Michael, the archangel, holding the keys of the bottomless pit. And at the same time, the devil is being chained and shut up in the bottomless pit. 
So there's a few differences, but there's enough overlap here between these two translations of the hieroglyphic pictures in this spell 125 from the Book of the Dead that I think we can have a great deal of confidence that not only was Henry Caswell told this by this unidentified Mormon as what Joseph Smith had described it as being, but that he's relating it correctly in his book. He seems to remember and recount details really well. Yes. And if you have that book from Joseph Smith Papers, Revelations and Translations, Volume 4, you can find this on pages 23 and 24. It's footnote 65. All right. And the second part of it was Jacob's Ladder, right? That's crazy. This guy is obviously just making fun of the Mormons to make a point, right? Because he came here with evil designs or evil intentions, right? But no, no, we have multiple accounts of people who are shown this exact same papyrus fragment in Nauvoo and maybe in Kirtland, in Kirtland too. And Jacob's ladder is pointed out as being on this woman's dress. I kid you not. Okay. So now do we have that? Yes. This is another place where, uh, Carrie shirts, help me out. Backyard professor approaching antiquity which is a book from a few years back. It collects a number of essays about Joseph Smith and the ancient world. This one is actually written by Carrie Mulestein. Wait, wait, who's Carrie Mulestein? Is, is that this guy? And so I start out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and anything else, <clears throat> excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. This paradigm on the screen right here. He fits it into these paradigms. Within that paradigm, because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true. And on these points, we'll just have to agree to disagree. But we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find. I'm glad you played that, Bill, because that makes it even more remarkable that he writes what it is we're going to be quoting from his paper. Yeah, and what seems strange to me, again, this document on the screen, Joseph failed. These guys come up with all these loopholes and long scrolls that are missing. But again, he starts with the assumption that everything is true. He can't deal with the fact that on this prayer 125, that Joseph Smith got, you know, he does get the one thing right. It is a redemption scene. It's a judgment scene. Yes. He got it right. Yes. And then proceeds to get every single detail wrong. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a, no, it's a redemption scene. Actually, you're right. It is not a judgment scene, according to this. It's a redemption scene. Yeah. There's no Nailed judgment it. going on. Church is true. Nailed there, it. There is no judgment going on in this interpretation. It's a redemption scene. It's only judgment in the Egyptian yeah. context. So yeah. I take it back, sorry. Okay, so where's that first slide from the article by Carrie Schertz in this wonderful book approaching? The Levitt account, there are actually different accounts about Jacob's Ladder. Another example of hearing about biblical connections comes from Sarah Levitt who saw the papyri in either late 1835 or early 1836, very soon after Joseph had acquired them. Sarah and her husband, Jeremiah, had traveled to Kirtland to be baptized. Levitt recalls that after hearing the prophet preach in the temple, quote, 
We went into the upper room, saw the Egyptian mummies, the writing that was said to be written in Abraham's day, ahem, ahem, in Abraham's day, Jacob's ladder being pictured on it. By the way, what was the last line on that? I was pausing for dramatic effect and you changed the slide. Was it? Was oh, no, that no, the last sorry. Line? It, all you were missing was and. And. Dang it. I knew I missed something. And. But I think that's the, 454. That's that page. And this page is what? 455. Okay. Now, you may have to make that full screen to read the unhighlighted portion. If yeah, you're well, to. that's the main part. And, and if anybody wants to go and read this, please do. But we're just trying to make the point that this is not something that uh, Caswell concocted out of his head. This is actually an interpretation of this very same facsimile, which had been told, not facsimile, but uh, spell 125, that had been told to multiple other people, and of which there's no reason to think that Caswell would have had any knowledge. So this says, while it is clear from the next page, while it is clear that someone spoke to Levitt of a connection between the papyri and the Bible, it is not clear who told Levitt that Jacob's ladder was depicted in the Egyptian vignettes. Because it followed directly after a sermon by Joseph Smith in the same building, it is possible that he also showed them the papyri and mummies, as he was wont to do. So they might be getting this directly from Joseph Smith, is what Kerry Muelstein is saying, but we cannot tell. At this period, Joseph Smith Sr., also sometimes showed visitors to mummies and papyri. Thus, Levitt is at best a second-hand source of Joseph Smith Jr.'s ideas, though she may be recalling the teachings of someone else altogether. Then it goes on. An account of a gentleman and two ladies being shown a papyrus hanging on the wall of the temple and being told Jacob's ladder was depicted thereon by Joseph Smith Sr. seems to be from the same time period. So we're multiplying accounts. Different people being told by different individuals that it's Jacob's ladder on this picture. Henry Caswell does not seem to be making this up. No, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established, right? Yeah, and there's more witnesses too. In fact, yeah. if you can go to the next page. Okay. Now what we have there is we have, the left page is the entire page, and on the right we have certain things from that page that are they were the highlighted portions in the book, whether they had to do with this yes. so, or not. So he's, he's synopsizing right now, and he says, Writings from Joseph of Egypt are spoken of 12 times in all these different accounts of people who are shown these papyri. Okay, that's what he's going to. The writings of Abraham are mentioned 46 different times. Writings from Joseph of, e of Egypt are spoken of 12 times, while Jacob, Isaac, Moses, and Aaron are each mentioned once. Jacob's ladder is mentioned three times. Even the serpent is mentioned three times, and a depiction of Enoch's tower is mentioned once. By the way, this may be the three, because he includes Caswell as one of the three. So this may be all three of the times that Jacob's ladder shows up in people's accounts of what they were told was on the papyrus when they were shown the papyrus in person. Yeah. And now, let me see ahead. here. There's one of what we can safely conclude. Yeah, the last line. What we can safely conclude. This is Carrie Muelstein. What we can safely conclude is that a number of people believe the Mormon prophet thought many of the drawings on the papyri, papyri were about the events and characters of the Bible, especially the Garden of Eden story and Jacob's ladder. Okay. Yeah. So that lady's skirt was definitely Jacob's ladder, and it seems pretty conclusive that that's what Joseph Smith thought. Otherwise, it's hard to account for why all these other people are being told it by different people. 
including Joseph Smith Sr., who would presumably know. So do you have the next page? Okay, is there anything here that can be blown up? Because this is where Kerry Muelstein, you see his name at the top of the page, is the author of this paper, the Caswell account. The part that's indented is the part that we've already read. And then down here, he rhapsodizes so about the credibility of Henry Caswell. Okay, once again, Kerry Muelstein is talking about how credible a witness he thinks Henry Caswell is. It says, because this is an account of what Caswell recalls of an, of an unknown person reporting what Joseph Smith said about the papyri, we must use caution in ascribing any of this to Joseph Smith. However, Caswell also heard a description of the meaning of what must have been the original source of facsimile one, which we talked about. What he recounts of that description matches perfectly with what had been published about that facsimile only one month earlier. Of course, I don't know if Kerry mentions it, but he should allow for the possibility that Caswell could have gotten it for the Times and Season account if he were intent on copying. What makes this other part a neat test is that I don't know of any place where this would have been published and accessible to Henry Caswell, and by that I mean his description of the spell 125 from the Book of the Dead. Such precision and reliability suggests that we can place a certain amount of trust in Caswell's other account of Joseph's interpretation. Additionally, the fact that both Levitt and Caswell, as well as possibly Kennedy's source, were told that Jacob's ladder was depicted on the papyri, despite several intervening years, indicates at the very least that for some time it was prevalently held that Joseph Smith thought Jacob's ladder was pictured on the papyri he owned. Boom! Thank you, Carrie Muelstein, for proving our point. Now, why am I going to all of this um, time and effort to belabor this point? I think probably most of our listeners have already figured it out. We don't know what happened between Caswell and Joseph Smith. We only have Caswell's view on it. So we can't know for sure. But what we do have in this 82-page book, the first edition, is several other tests, places that we can test Caswell's reliability. And he ends up coming across as a very reliable narrator. Every place that we know what the correct answer is or should be, we find that Caswell says it exactly the way it is or should be. And in none of these places, does he add anything for the sake of dramatic effect or for the sake of ridiculing the Mormons? It appears that from his point of view, and I don't mean this derogatorily, it appears from his point of view, he didn't have to gild the, gild the lily or add anything that didn't really happen in order to present the Mormons and their leader in a less than flattering light. So we've got this whole thing where he exactly describes what is on this papyri, both of them. And even though it sounds ridiculous, and frankly, it sounds ridiculous to me still today to have this Christianized version of this uh, dog being the devil and Jesus sitting there and hell and the four uh, sons of Horus being all the people of the earth. But we know that's what Joseph Smith thought because of facsimile too. And especially Jacob's ladder on the pleats of this lady's dress. But that's what was told to other people as well. 
and other people that we have no reason to think that Caswell would have known of. So he ends up getting high marks in his reliability every place we can test him. Okay, hang on just a second. I will tell you something else. Now, having read this book, and it doesn't take a long time to read. It's 82 pages. It's not poorly written. But this is just one incident that happens during these three days in Nauvoo. This is not a screed or an expose against Mormons. There is nothing in it about Danites or secret midnight kidnappings or murders or people being thrown out of the Salt Lake Temple into the Salt Lake. Obviously, they're in Nauvoo, but I'm using that as an example. There's nothing about polygamy in the book. There's no evidence that Caswell was even aware of that going on at the time. The things that he mentions are very small little things. And one of the things he mentions has to do with petty theft, which seems to have been running rampant in Nauvoo, according to him. He gets there the first day and they're having an outdoor church meeting. And one of the brothers gets up and talks for a while. And then he mentions that he has a, um, a barrel of lead. It seems like lead came in barrels back then. I expect then you get it and melt it down and do whatever it was you needed to do with it. But it's missing. And he brings it up in this public discourse. And he says, you know, it's possible some of you, out, somebody out there thought this was their barrel of lead and took it. Well, I'd appreciate it if you returned to me. And if you took it knowing it wasn't yours, then you need to return it to me even more. And then some other guy gets up there and said, yeah, the same thing happened with the $10 bill the other day. And I, I'd really appreciate that being returned to me. So he sees all this petty theft going on. And indeed... When they're going on their last trip across the Mississippi on the, at the end of the third day, April 19th, and he's got two Mormons with him who are giving him a ride in the skiff, and they go to the place where it had been put up on the shoreline that morning when they arrived, and they go down there, and the oars are missing. Somebody's stolen the oars from the boat. And Caswell says, well, what the heck's going on? Why would these be stolen? And one of the Mormons tells him, well, it's probably some of the Nauvoo youth. And Caswell says, well, don't they get taught the Ten Commandments, including the Eighth One, Thou Shall Not Steal? And the other Mormon says, yeah, they do, but I don't think they listen to it very much. So these are the kinds of stories that Caswell is talking about in this. They are extremely modest stories, which gives the impression to me that they're more likely to be true. In other words, this account of Joseph Smith doesn't appear in the middle of an expose like maybe Jim Bennett. I keep saying Jim Bennett. Why don't I say John Rick Bennett? C. Or I could say John C. I could say the actual right name. There's too many Bennett's out there. But John Bennett, right? It's not one of these kind of One exposés. out of three ain't bad. I'm sorry, what? One out of three ain't bad. Yeah, yeah. So if you read the book, you'll see it's very, very modest. And when you get to his encounter with Joseph Smith, that's very modest too. We've already read what he says happened. Very small. And... The whole point of this is that if we are to suppose that Caswell is making this up and he's writing a book about it, so he wants to make it good, right? If, he, if he's making this up and he has a blank canvas to paint on, why doesn't he give us something to look at? Yeah. Why doesn't he have something really good happen? He gets into this huge multi-page argument about religion with the other Mormons after Joseph Smith leaves. If he's making it up, why not make that a face-to-face -face with Joseph Smith? Since he wins, since Caswell wins, hands down, at least according to the way he relates it. So there's all these aspects of it that make me tend to think 
75% at a minimum. I went from 51% to 75% after reading this book. So he gets the, um, the facsimiles right, and I'm going to go through a few of my notes here really quick as to why it is I'm at 75%. By the way, Backyard Professor said he's at 85%, and he wanted me to quote him on that. This is not a late recollection. It's very important. I mentioned that before, but let me stress this here. This is not something from 50 years later. This is a story that is told later that same year, April 19th, 1842, and the book containing the story, first edition, published Liverpool, England in 1842. This is not a late recollection. Now, obviously, that's not going to save it from intentional fabrication, but it will help save it from unintentional mischaracterization. Okay? I've talked about how small um, Caswell's complaints are. I talked about how all that Joseph says, according to him, is he just identifies the book as a dictionary of the, of the Egyptian language. Um... There's the debate he has with the Mormons afterward. I was going spontaneously and impromptu, and I'm seeing how much of I, of that I actually did cover from my outline. Oh, he also repeats some stories that he heard about Joseph Smith drinking, being publicly intoxicated. That was also something that he focused on. It doesn't seem sensationalized. I know, you know, Mormons aren't going to like it, but like I said, if this one story were not in this 82-page booklet and also in the later book that he published, second edition next year, I don't think anybody would be mentioning this book at all. And once again, as I say in my outline, everywhere we can check Caswell, we find him to be a reliable narrator and not going beyond the facts as he doubtless would have observed them. We talked about Greek versus Egyptian. <clears throat> Joseph Smith may have seen, probably did see Greek six and a half years before. Joseph had seen Greek, but it was seven years ago and we don't know how much he got into it. Hebrew, Hebrew and then Egyptian took up his time after that. Joseph definitely had Egyptian alphabets and grammar on the brain after working on it so hard during the preceding weeks and months to get the Book of Abraham ready to be published in the March 1st and 15th installments of 1842 in the Times and Seasons. And then I note that Joseph identifies the capital letters as Egyptian and the explanations as Reformed Egyptian. Caswell has Joseph Smith making that distinction that the capital letters are Egyptian and the letters after that, which are really Greek. He has Joseph Smith identifying those as Reformed Egyptian and saying that they look like the characters that were on the plates from which he translated the Book of Mormon. Doesn't that really only make sense if Joseph Smith actually said that? In other words, where does Caswell get this Mormon idea of Reformed Egyptian and decide to insert it in his make-believe story it actually leads credibility that it's not make-believe at all, that that's actually what Smith said, because Reformed Egyptian is a Mormon term that Caswell wouldn't have had outside of Mormonism. Right. Well, he was certainly studying Mormonism. I mean, he had bought yeah. up all the 1841 issues of the Times and Seasons from the year before. So I don't know how much he would have known. I don't know that we can rely upon that because he was trying to find out about it. And he's actually going to end up writing a book about the history of, of the Mormons. But, um, but you're right, it is an interesting detail that he adds in there, which a clever liar would put it in there for purposes of verisimilitude. But a person who's telling the truth, it does give it that, that air of reality that this really happened. 
So why would Caswell say Joseph Smith said the first letter is Egyptian, but the rest is reformed Egyptian? It sounds like something that Joseph Smith might have actually said. That's the point you're getting at, Bill? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it just seems like an interesting answer. In other words, the answer feels like the kind of answer that a more believing Mormon, especially Joseph Smith, would want to insert. And here's Caswell, a non-member, kind of looking at Mormonism from the outside, and he gets, you know, he he remembers the details of that prayer 125 so well. He his facts around the case. I mean, John Taylor and others admit that he uh that this this interaction occurred. You've got Mark Ashurst McGee who is uh, essentially saying, no, I actually believe the story, but, you know, prophet's only a prophet when acting as such. Um, and I think the story is really interesting for not just the reason of exposing the Greek Psalter incident, which is an event in Mormonism that I've bumped into slightly because I read Mormon think, or I've seen it maybe on Wikipedia, but it wasn't a story I was familiar with. And you'd been talking for months and months about eventually wanting to cover this story. But that's, you know, that's the big one, that there's this other translation production that Joseph Smith puts his two cents on. And if the account is true, he's once again wrong. But it also brings in this Prayer 125 role, which is kind of a tangent document to the Book of Abraham episode uh, in Mormon history that we don't ever get a chance to conversate about. I guess 99, my guess would be 99.9% of our viewers and, and listeners are unfamiliar with that document. It was the first time I had encountered it. And here we're showing that Joseph Smith got that thing wrong too. Well, yeah, unless the ancient Egyptians were actually closeted Christians. Yes. They're not even closeted. They're writing in their scroll in the rolls for crying out loud, their scrolls. Yeah, but yeah. And yet everything looks Egyptian and fits within Egyptian framework. Yeah. So there's yeah. Uh, a lot of things that we've covered tonight. But the main thing even though I think that's a fascinating detour, especially about Jacob's Ladder. I mean, that is just so... Yeah. I don't want to be pejorative. Let me just say that that evinces an extreme focus on reading Christian and Hebrew Bible stories into the papyri representations. How In the that? hem of an Egyptian dress. Yes. <laughs> well, where else would you put... Jacob's ladder. Yeah. Running right it's, up into her inseam. Yep. Yeah. It's like Mae West is purported to have had a, a garter on her leg and on the garter was written the words heavens above. Yeah. Yep. If only I could start with those assumptions that Carrie Molstein starts with. Nothing. Heavens above is not getting anything, huh? No traction. Just to, let me just say the telephone number. So phone lines are open 662-667-6667. Uh, 662-667-6667. So it'd be 662 Mormons if you want to type out the word. Uh, there's also another way to get into the show without a telephone if you read the banner at the bottom. We don't have any calls in right now. So if there's anything else you want to add to the conversation before we hopefully have a call or two in the in the phone bank. Well, Kerry's got to be scrambling for his phone right now. I'm surprised he hasn't called in already. While we're waiting, I can continue with what's it all about? Henry? Do you think it's Do you think it's odd? You know, these guys with the book of Abraham, you got John Gee, who still says, you know, he understands the complexities on both both apologetic solutions, and he still leans towards the missing scroll. But it seems like in their framing of dealing with the book of Abraham, they sort of keep at a distance things like this. I'll put it up on the screen here, this prayer scroll 125, and I'll put up the cleaner copy of it. 
Yeah, the spell. It, it seems like this is also another piece of strong evidence that the long scroll is bullshit and that here we are dealing with Egyptian documents and Joseph Smith is getting it wrong, 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 and wrong. Right. And, well, Osiris yeah. is a is a Christ figure. He's a dying and resurrecting God. So there you go. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. It, yeah. That's about it. it. It just seems that they play this game with believers where they isolate believers around a certain issue and pretend like, hey, if you just make some allowances, everything ends well. But if they brought in all the tangents of the book of Abraham, for instance, they would have to deal with things like this and mm -hmm. a plethora of other stuff. And it just ends up being, ah, you know, it, it just ends up being mounds and mounds of evidence against Joseph Smith far beyond what the average believer who deals with this issue encounters. I think that you're right because I don't recall ever reading about this in the apologetic literature no. about the book of Abraham. I waded no. through for years and years no. as an active believing Mormon seeking for reasons to believe. And I can understand why, because if I had encountered this, it wouldn't have helped my belief. Everybody in the town knows that that's Jacob's ladder. They know that this is either Christ or God on the throne. This is either Adam and Jesus behind the dog. The dog is the devil. This is also a translation production of Joseph Smith. And again, we can go like, well, we don't know that. But the most rational, logical conclusion based on everybody repeating the information is that Joseph Smith informed the church members that this was the translation for this document. Who else is going to translate it anyway? Who else is going to suggest that that's Jacob's ladder and that the, the dog is the devil and Jesus is on the throne? G Joseph Smith is their prophet, seer, and revelator. He's the only one on earth who holds all the keys who can translate. Of course it was Joseph Smith. And so this is another translation production beyond the six we already listed where Joseph Smith lays it out and assumedly gets it wrong. And as you know, whereas there are other people, including the apostles, who are also called prophets, seers, and revelators, there's only one individual in the entire history of the church who has had the title and office of translator with a capital T, and that's Joseph Smith. Fine, you guys win. Carrie! Carrie, okay. Thank you, Carrie. We win. You're the best. You want to come on next week's show? Yeah, we'd love to have him and talk about just prayer roll 125. I bet we can make a whole episode just out of that. And I've never seen that avatar of Batman looking up at the bat signal from the top of the building at night and anybody else's avatar before. It's usually a taper for the apologist. They stick it up on the wall. <laughs> of course, I'm being sarcastic. Up. By the way, by the way, I want to give it as my working hypothesis now. Now, there's lots of people out there who know these documents much better than I do. And Carrie Schertz is one of them and Brian Hauglitz another. I'm not sure if John Gee is one or Carrie Muelstein, because they spend most of their time, time trying to avoid these documents as opposed to actually looking at them and understanding them. Sorry, but it, truth hurts. Mm -hmm. So the thing is this, I'm going to give it as my working hypothesis that the translation worked this way. The translation doesn't start with the little characters and the little hieroglyphs. I think the translation starts with the pictures. And Joseph Smith sees that picture and he uh, facsimile one and it's, it's Abraham. He's on the couch and he's getting sacrificed. And so then he starts translating the little uh, hieroglyphs that are next to it. And lo and behold, they start telling the story about Abraham and how he almost got sacrificed in Egypt just the same way that the uh, vignette represents. So I'm giving that as a possibility.
Yeah, and that that makes a lot of sense um, and, because and you'd have to again, be able what? you'd have to be able to explain what the illustration is accomplishing, and the characters can mean anything, but you are sort of limited to at least a somewhat plausible idea around what these characters on this document are in a room doing together to be able to posit some sort of narrative that that the characters are translated to that 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 illustration represents right and i will say once again that those four sons of horus i think that joseph smith got the idea from the spell 125 from the book of the dead papyrus because that appears in a constellation of other images and they all make sense together it's not this one this is a different one right but these are just the sons of horus right those are the sons of horus right and you've got the the devil behind him ready to eat him and you got uh jesus there in front and there's redemption and all this kind of stuff this is a constellation of different images that are given a christian interpretation and it makes sense to me that those four sons of horus representing the earth in its four quarters then gets transferred over to facsimile too because there's nothing about facsimile too that would suggest that those four sons of horse should represent the earth in its four quarters the way it does in the book of the dead spell 125. yeah i yeah, first totally. thought is that the devil behind the four sons of horse in facsimile to the hypocephalus and i said no that's a cow that's hathor that's not a good representation of the dog it's definitely this other papyrus not the hypocephalus yeah yeah Okay, I've got a couple calls in the phone bank. Do you are you feeling good about ending the conversation here on Henry Coswell? Yes. Uh, okay, sweet. So let's pull up some phone calls. Um, I think we've got Sheila on the phone. Sheila, are you there? Yes, I am here. Hello. How are you? Hi. I'm doing doing well. How are you guys? Good. Good. I'm good. Too. Good. Um, I just wanted to point out something um, about Carrie Nielsen's quote, where he says that the assumptions that we make determine what kind of evidence uh, is discarded or retained. Um, as an yeah. academic, oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. As an academic, when I listen to Dr. Nielsen, like at yeah. face value, I hear you know this strange justification where he makes no. Well, basically, he admits to making no efforts to contain his confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. But I also hear in the comments a kind of subtle gaslighting where I think when believers might listen to Dr. Mielstein talk, um, it communicates like, oh, all the unbelievers, they are just engaging in confirmation bias. And I think that that's, there's kind of this insidious part of it that I really found myself reacting to this time. Uh, when you were talking about all of these issues. So I just wanted to um, point out that the, uh, that implication that he's making that the critics are simply engaging in confirmation bias because I don't think that's true. And I think that that part of it should also be mocked. So anyway, that's what I have to say. I appreciate uh, getting on the getting on the call. Thank you. Yeah, Sheila, thank, thank you, you Sheila. for calling. I appreciate that. I hope that our analysis of the Greek Psalter episode tonight has evinced, I mean, I hope it has evinced a, a, an approach to the subject that is balanced and trying to take account of the evidence as best it can in order to come to some kind of provisional determination as to what is more likely to have happened. And of course, 
my personal is about 75% that Henry Caswell is telling the truth and that this actually did happen. But this isn't a thing where I came into it with a prejudice that because Caswell says something that is unflattering to Joseph Smith, that Caswell must be defended at all odds or at all costs, I should say. So hopefully this whole episode shows something different than what it is that Carrie Muelstein was saying critics do. Yeah, and sort of like the tar and feathering story of Joseph Smith that we covered. Right. When I first looked at this and started to prepare this when you and I decided this is what we would do, my original conclusion was, yeah, to some extent, we don't really know what was said. And I think the evidence leans a little bit more towards Henry's favor. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to tell our audience that we don't really know. And then when you discovered the connection to this uh, this Prayer 125 document, uh at, at that point, the conversation became much more interesting. And at that point, I begin to lean heavily along with you uh, in thinking that Henry is completely telling the truth. And it's only the early Mormon leaders who are trying to obfuscate the issue. Yeah. And by the way, if you read the book, the day before on April 18th, he goes to Nauvoo and he meets Joseph Smith's mother. Yeah, look at that. So he can see the mummies. And she's got yeah. the mummies and he describes the mummies and he and he describes what it is. He says that Lucy Max Smith told him, and nothing that she told him would surprise a Mormon or a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But it is shocking to Henry Caswell and his readers. One of the things that Lucy yeah. Max Smith tells him is that her son Joseph can translate because he's got the Urim and Thummim, which she describes as being two triangular crystals contained in a silver bow. By the way, yes, yes. Why in the hell? Would a translator who translates by the gift and power of God attempt to do a secular translation for which they have no qualifications to do? I'm afraid you'd have to ask an apologist. <laughs> no, I think that Joseph Smith really, really did see himself as a translator and as a person who had the inside scoop on things, that he did this by revelation. I mean, there's no way he can come up with the Egyptian alphabet and grammar except by revelation, because there's no resource that he could go to in a secular way to come up with it because it wasn't really understood at that time. I will say something else you brought up. You see, almost everything that we can check and everything I think that we can check Caswell on has a precedent. So he says that Lucy Max Smith tells him this and it was attached to a breastplate about the Urim and Thummim. Well, it's described elsewhere as this triangular these triangular uh, stones, or it may be a round stone with a triangle in the center, it's not exactly clear, clear contained in a silver bow, in a different account. So yeah. it sounds like he's accurately representing what it is that Lucy Max Smith actually told him. And we know that the other thing is that according to Caswell, it was Dr. Willard Richards, I think we finally concluded, who told him that sometimes Joseph Smith is speaking as a man, right? Well, that has its own precedent. Because we remember that back in 1830, when Joseph Smith sent that group of guys up to Canada to sell the copyright to the Book of Mormon, and they failed, and they came back, remember what it is that he told them according to them. Some revelations are of God, some are of men, and some are of the devil. Yeah. So as embarrassing, or as outlandish, or as foreign as a lot of these things that are recounted in Caswell's book might sound to non-Mormon ears, those who know their Mormonism it sounds pretty darn familiar, which also gives it, 
I think more credibility. I may be up to 80% by now. Yeah, I love it. Okay, we've got one more call, and I think it's the Backyard Professor, so this should be good. Okay, uh, this will be about half an hour. Carrie, how are you? Are you there? Oh, let me, oh, I think I pushed the wrong button. Let's try this again. Okay, Carrie, are you, are you there? Doing? Hey, yeah, Carrie, how are you? How Thank are you, you so much for your help with tonight's show, my friend. I'm Oh, well, thank you. You've been way too generous to me, but I appreciate that. Um, I do have a couple of comments. Um, I I honestly, I, I appreciate the credit you're giving me, but Dan Vogel knows these documents far better than I ever will. And Dan I who? get all my information from him. Who? Dan that? Vogel. Okay. Yeah, it's some it's some guy out there in Mormon land. But anyway, um, another idea, Bill, you mentioned just now in your conversation that uh, you were wondering why someone who had this gift of translating would try to do a secular translation. Just put the rock in the hat, Carrie. Just put the rock in the hat and tell people what God says it is. Like you can never get it wrong if you if you say what God tells you absolutely true however the other side of that coin now he would have yeah that's true the other side of the coin is when i did my uh video this last sunday on or saturday or whenever i do too many videos but it's too much fun not to do them on the section 93 of john's lost greek parchment right the reason that joseph smith wanted to be a translator is it really did elevate him in the eyes of everybody else if he could do it without the seer stone. It was a it was a way of making him a spectacular prophet because he cut off Oliver Cadre from ever translating again in one of the most clever ruses that I have ever heard when Cowdery tried to translate with his gift of the rod of Aaron, and he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then Joseph Smith, through the Lord's voice, of course, said, well, it's not neat for you to translate right now. You will do it later. And that's how Joseph Smith kicked Oliver Cowdery out of it. Now only Joseph Smith gets to be the translator. Hmm. So that's one of my, that's one of my ideas of, uh, Joseph Smith never gave up on that translating idea ever, all through his life. Everything he found had to have a biblical precedence through a translation, largely, and I get my idea from Dan Vogel again, because Joseph was trying to establish that patriarchal priesthood and to put himself in that line of biblical prophets because there's no greater prestige in Joseph Smith's day than being able to say, well, I'm one of the biblical prophet lines. I'm in line with them, or having his followers say that about him. Carrie, so, what do you think and about... And one other idea... Oh, Carrie, I want to ask you this before you get to your last ahead. idea, so write it down so you don't forget it. Okay. Okay. So what do you think about the insight that I gave that not only is Joseph Smith seeing nothing but Old Testament Bible stories and figures in these papyrus vignettes, but he also includes New Testament figures like Jesus Christ judging the world and Michael (laughs) holding Satan 
with the chain and the bottomless pit, which comes directly out of the New Testament and the book of Revelation. So he not only sees Old Testament figures, he sees New Testament things going on. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I had, I'm going to be honest with you. I have been so stuck on the Old Testament ideas that Joseph has been trying to throw out there that you actually kind of surprised me by bringing that up. And I should have seen it, but I didn't. So I owe you a beer next time we get together because that idea shows he is just making stuff up in the most dramatic way, not just from the Old Testament, but if you can bring in Jesus Christ, just like they're trying to do again today, then you've got the entire Christian world out there. All you have to do now is show them, hey, look, our prophet can translate ancient texts that are discovering new information about Jesus Christ. And they accepted the idea that innovation was, a, was an evidence for his prophetic power. But in the early Christian times, it was innovation that caused the apostasy. So innovation for you is apostasy. Innovation for me is restoration. There's something really incongruous with that approach, isn't there? <laughs> That's clever of him. Good point. It's like the age-old axiom that apostasy is when your church changes. Continuing revelation is when my church changes. Right, Carrie? Perfect. Yeah, you're, you're succinctly perfect on that. Another item I'll just bring up, and then I'll let the other caller get on. Oh, and I also, I really like Sheila's idea on the bias confirmation, because the the uh, strategy now that Kerry Molstein has gone to, and he's virtually forced to this, I'm not trying to offend the man. I hope he doesn't yell at me in the chat. He just donated some money. <laughs> it's, he has now gone all out in always mentioning biases and background assumptions. And then, he, and of course, it's going to try to put that onto our side, mm -hmm. our meaning we who are criticizing. And then he turns right around and just displays all of his assumptions by continuing the same arguments him and John Gee have given for get this 35 years and not one of their assumptions have been accepted in the actual Egyptological world. None of their contributions have contributed to understanding anything about ancient Egyptian chronology, kingship, theology, how to become deified. It does not matter what doctrine the ancient Egyptians had. The Mormons have not contributed so that's got to be a black eye to well it's just amazing and to my me last that a person... idea is... oh well, i was just gonna say it's oh, amazing to me that a person i.e carrie mulstein who's in an academic profession would say hey everybody has assumptions my assumption is the book of abraham is true so i work everything to fit into it and then first off that's bad enough right but then he justifies it he seeks to uh -huh. justify that pinheaded point of view by alleging that everybody else who comes to opposite conclusions, i.e. that the book of Abraham is not true, they start off 
with equally absurd and irrational and prejudicial ideas and assumptions that the book of Abraham is not true, and then they interpret all the evidence to reach their conclusion, just the way Kerry is doing on his side of things. I think that is just a remarkable thing for an alleged scholar to be saying publicly. Mm. Yes, and he will never work anywhere else in the whole universe except at BYU. Which for makes, that. Which yeah. makes perfect sense why you must start with that assumption and go the rest of your life to your dying breath holding it. And eventually, when you do yes, that, sir. you end up looking like John Gee. Yeah. <laughs> yes. One more quick idea. I'm not trying to take so much time, but you guys, your show is just absolutely stellar. I love you guys. You're my inspiration. So one last idea, and I will pursue this with him because I've already got him uh, interested in coming on my show, I do believe. Uh, Don Bradley, in his book, The Lost 116 Pages. And I'm looking right now on page 49 and 50, for those of you who have it, if you want to look at it. He describes that triangular eyepiece in the spectacles, and he gives some very interesting Kabbalistic, almost magic speculation on what that is. And I think that's utterly fascinating. Mm. So I'm just saying there's, there's future materials available that's going to be coming out that are really looking good. So That'll be you great. guys you know, are inspiring I had that... all the rest of us to try to do better. Yeah, so that'd thank be great. you for all you do. You're fine. You're fine. I had that book by uh, Bradley, uh, Don Bradley. I had the book by Don Bradley about the 116 uh -huh. lost pages once, but I lost you, it. You lost it. Does he actually tell us what's <laughs> in there? Like, do we actually have information on what's in the 116 pages? This is this is Don Bradley's book where he tries to adduce from different little clues that are in the historical record and tries to approach some kind of ideas to what may have been on that 116 pages. Do I have yeah. that right for not having read the book, Harry? Yes, and the other interesting, remarkably interesting detective work he does, and, and it just shocked me, is he shows how Lucy Harris may very well have been a scapegoat. It might not have been her who destroyed the manuscript. And it's spectacular how he goes through that. He also demonstrates that it wasn't just 116 pages. It may very well have been up to 300 pages. So we'll oh, right. see. I remember yeah. that. It'll be fun to have him on the phone. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, you've talked to Don Bradley, yeah. have you, Kerry? That's yes. a yes or no. Uh -huh. And he has agreed with you to come on yeah. your show, Backyard Professor? Well, I don't know if he has agreed yet, but he uh, is open to it when he's ready, and it's all good by me. I just told him, look, whatever you're comfortable with, I'm not going to entrap you. I, I have no interest in springing a gotcha on you. You know, I just want to talk about your book. And uh, i become good friends with him, and I respect his scholarship. I disagree with his conclusions. We both are well aware of all of that. It's all good. There's a reason but I, I think asked you all that. of us now. Oh, yes, go ahead. If he does come on your show, could you ask him as your first question why he won't come on Mormonism Live? Sure. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and, and if he has um, a solution I, for I, that I, Kinderhook plate problem. 
Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna do a show on that too. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. there's there's some issues with that, um, yeah. but at least they're attempting to try to be much more careful than the early Mormons did, who just ridiculously accepted the Kinderhook plates as authentic. You know, Mike from LDS discussions with John DeLynn on the Mormon stories has done superb work on that issue. So. That's a great series to watch also. But yeah, I think what's happening here, which is really fun as far as I'm concerned, and you guys just had that wonderful Mormonism Live with Jim Bennett, and you were on the same subject, the same wavelength. I've had Steve Pinecker of Mormon Book Reviews, and um, um, I knew I was going to forget his name, The Heartlander. Neville. Anyway, Jonathan Neville. Uh, Jonathan Neville. Thank you. Yes, because of the the boo ha ha with that's how Mike I remembered Parker it. Is the whole Pan Mike Parker and, episode. And, yes, and you and Steve just did massive, awesome work. I I've been dying to tell you that. Now I can do it publicly. Thank you for all that effort. That was spectacular. So the thing is, my suspicion is. And I'm going to go on record saying this. Uh, I'm going to commit myself. I, I think the Mormons are now recognizing sincerely that they're out of gas. Now it's becoming attack mode. I just did a broadcast with uh, uh, Mormonish, with Landon and Rebecca just the other day. And we are talking about the new website that came out that are deliberately attacking all of us, you, yeah, Brian Hales, Mormon discussion, he, he is such a little, twerp, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. Isn't he, Carrie? Isn't Brian Hales a twerp? Yeah. Would well, you consider I mean, him a little twerp? I, I, I hate that hominem, but his arguments are a little twerpish. <laughs> He's no, just, I mean, just, silly, just look at him. I know. Quit ad hominem. <laughs> They're going to get us on that, you know. So, oh, Carrie, Carrie, before I forget, before I forget. Carrie, before I forget, I got to say, to give the rest of the story, oh, here we go. We're going to take a little trip down to Twerpville. And here's the mayor of Twerpville. It's Brian Hales. Nope, nothing twerpy about that. He just got remarried, I think. Yes, he did. Yeah. He did it. He did. I think it was uh, less than a year. But you know something? I'm not here to judge. Yeah. But two months dead, agree, not so much, I, not I two. Am, hey, I want to say I about Don Bradley. Carrie, Carrie, I want to say about Don Bradley. <laughs> he did not come on the show. We talked about it. And he didn't just say, no, I'm never coming on your show. Uh, he said, uh, maybe later. It was kind of like a don't call us, we'll call well, you. That's what, that's what he's doing with me, too. And it's all good. He's okay. He's got other stuff he's doing. Well, if he comes so on my show, if he comes on this show first, Carrie, if he comes on this show first, I'll say, hey, Don, how come you won't go on Carrie's show? If he goes on your fir your show first, you can ask him the reverse, okay? Deal, just so we both get him on our show. So that will work. I the will only way out that. of this is for him no, to appear on both of our shows simultaneously. Oh, that's true. We could have a mass group uh, laugh-in. So yes, that would work. Anyway, um, we are going to elevate this discussion to the point where 
the Mormon apologists have to start doing better with their evidences and better with fleshing out the consequences of those evidences. That's my theory. They I think they're going to have no choice they because they can't do they either of those things, Carrie. They otherwise, they become like you. Exactly. That's why they won't do it. But they have to if they want to appear truthful and be truthful. So we've got them where we want them. If they Apparently, aren't already truthful, it's not high on their list of priorities, Gary. Yeah. And if they aren't already not, privately in that conclusion anyway. Yeah. Okay. That's hey, Carrie, true. It, Carrie, it's remarkably Carrie? amazing. It's remarkably amazing that the true church has to lie to be the true church. That's yeah, the that's greatest strange. irony oh. in existence. So, I yeah. think that's a good point. So at I'm that point, you should probably wrap time. up, don't you? Yeah, let's. We're gonna <laughs> let you go, Carrie. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Great show. Thank you, my friend. Thanks. For Thank the you, help Carrie. Too. You're awesome. We love you. Get Thank out of here. You, Hang up now. Goodbye. I, love you. <laughs> I might have hung up on him accidentally. All right. <laughs> all but right. Well, big thanks to Carrie because he was a big help to putting all this together. Right. He was a big absolutely. help in getting this information to you. And I would have thanked him again, except he called for a protracted call at the end to thank himself. Carrie, yeah, you're the man. You are the man. And thank you. And thank you, Dan Vogel, whoever you are. Yeah, whoever that Dan Vogel guy is. And thanks, and everybody. Don... Bill, I'm yeah. sorry. You go ahead and finish it. You finish it up. You wrap it up. You take us out of here. This is your show. I'll shut up. You have no, the no, final no. word. I just want to say that if anybody sits down with Don Bradley, please go back and watch our Kinderhook episode. And ensure because he was working on a solution to a really serious problem. And I'm just curious if that solution has ever come out. But otherwise, great conversation on Henry Coswell. He seems to have integrity based on all the documentation. He seems to be the guy telling the truth. And it looks like it's the Mormons that don't want to deal with what was really happened in that room that day. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.